Excellent. Everything worked seamlessly today for once. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and thank you yet again for swinging by another one of my streams. Today is the Merged Worlds Dungeons & Dragons stream, episode 12. Um, hello, Philip. Hello, Taijo. And hello, Mayor Kinghorn. Welcome. Uh, yes, this is the 12th episode of our Merged Worlds story stream. So, um, putting that in perspective, each episode being a little over, a little around two hours, means we've already had 22 hours of this story before this. I've told the story many times uh, in gatherings with friends and such, sometimes over several nights, but I never get to go into quite this much detail. So it is definitely taking uh, a lot longer. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad for that opportunity to get to go into so much detail and share all the cool little moments and things that I remember happening. So, yeah. So we'll give it a minute or two, let everybody just slide up in, and then we'll do just a minor recap from where we left off and then jump into it again. While we're waiting on everyone to show up, um, I'm going to touch on this a couple times tonight, but I'll start with, uh, we now have, uh, right now, going on for the channel, a fan art contest. Uh, people had expressed some interest in sending in fan art. Uh, so we do have a fan art contest going on that just started this week and runs through the end of May. Um, it could be anything channel-related. Um, if you, you know, something about Merged Worlds itself, of course, D&D stuff, things about my... My Minecraft skin, Minecraft in general, any the seven days of die that we do, any of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, like I said, you can do anything at all. But uh, if it's something you want to submit via email, uh, you can submit that uh, on our website. If you go to onlydraven.com, there's a link at the top to the fan art page specifically. There you will find um, the email address that you can email it to. If you'd rather send a physical drawing um, or physical crochet, you knit, you needlepoint, you want to send in something of that nature, there is a P.O. Box address on there that I have got for the channel now. Uh, so we now have a P.O. Box for those folks who do want to send something physical uh, in any form of fan art. And there's going to be some prizes. We've got some basic prizes set up now, uh, but I'm looking to add at least probably one more, maybe even grand prize on top of that. So I'm still in talks with that one. So kind of in the air whether or not I can get that one working out. Um, let's see here. Uh, blah, blah, blah. What have I done this past week for Sky Factory 3? Sky Factory 3, we have got all... Um, I got a hold of the Nether Quartz and the Netherrack Chicken. Uh, they're bred all the way up and just did some cleaning and building of basic supplies. I didn't do any exploration. I'm going to do that all on channel. So mostly just menial stuff. Uh, Kingdom says, I'm sorry, but I'm playing Roblox. But I'm done. That's all right. It's not a problem there. <laughs> Enjoy your game. Um, so yeah, um, as many of you may know, every other Sunday we do this Merge Worlds D&D stream. Um, I've been running the same Dungeons & Dragons campaign and uh, storyline for over 25 years at this point. Um, I've been playing D&D for over 30 years, uh, and I've been DMing and running games longer. But this storyline and this world and such, I started uh, right a little over 25 years ago. And as I moved from one area to another, and I got new friends, new groups of people, uh, the storyline just continued. Their characters now became... Uh, the next generation of characters of that same storyline. So what I'm sharing with all of you on this stream is the just basically the cohesive story from the beginning to the end, which began with the Fire Moon Brothers in Episode 1 and up to where we are right now. So uh, I'll start with a, a, a recap and give a moment for some more folks to slide in before we jump into the new stuff. Um, 
recap. So where we ended off last time, if you'll remember, our characters are looking for the Masani stones. Um, they need to gather all of those up in order to be able to get back the magical artifacts and weapons that they need to potentially unlock the world. And hello, Gerhardus. Um, this whole story kind of started here um, because of an incident that created this new massive world that we're on. Uh, Merge World itself, it was a magical explosion. I explain all the everything behind that in the first couple episodes, but this magic explosion grabbed a piece of every world in existence and hurled them together to form one new giant world. And people are either trying to rebuild their lives in this new world or they're trying to figure out what happened and how to get back home. So um, that's kind of the driving forces. Right now, our four main characters are an elven cleric of healing named Artemis. Uh, she is a um, pretty good character. Uh, then we also have Mercy, a human female warrior. We have Dandelion, or Dandy, who is a uh, female Kender rogue. And then Darsh Fohammer, who is a minotaur warrior. Um, so they are our group, and right now they're trying to figure out what happened to the rest of their party, because it was bigger. And uh, trying to get these magical artifacts back on behalf of a demigod named Zoltan, who just is a thorn in everybody's side, as usual. Uh, let's see. Tell you, remember, follow leaderboard says Joshman because that was your original name. Oh yeah, that'll always stay up on there as it was originally. It'll, as it refreshes and such, it'll uh, switch. Should switch to the new one. All right. So I guess we'll go ahead and just jump into this story. Um, as usual, if you have any questions. Uh, feel free to throw them in chat about the story. Uh, anything D&D related, throw it at me. Or if you'd rather, you can throw it in the uh, comment section after this if you're watching this later. Um, if you are listening to this, this is also an audio podcast on iTunes. It only pops up within 24 hours of the video stream. Uh, so I appreciate those of you who are listening to it on iTunes as well. Uh, as well, if you have any feedback or questions about the story, everyone can go to OnlyDraven.com, which is my website. The bottom of the homepage is a place that you can submit an email with questions, feedback, anything you'd like. Uh, you'll also find my streaming schedule, links to Merge World photographs, uh, actors and drawings that I use, or actresses that represent the characters so that you know what I'm talking about. That actor or that actress represents the character as close as I could find, anyways. Um... And, you know, you find podcasts, all sorts of stuff on there. So definitely check out the website. Okay, so let's dive on in then. Um, at the last adventure, the group had successfully gotten the Water Stone. Um, they defeated a man who had merged with the stone and had gained control over water and was sinking ships. And on behest of the leaders of Paxiwal, uh, they had joined their navy to go out and figure out what was going on and managed to defeat him and get a hold of the gem. At the same time, they gathered a large amount of uh, valuable materials, whether it be coins, gold, uh, just you know, things that are from the sinks that this, uh, the ships that it sank that this person is gathering. That was all claimed by the Navy and taken back to Paxwell, even though a lot of it was from ships from other nations, because it's hard to tell, you know, who's, who's, who's belongs to who, right? So Paxwell claimed it, because that's who you were with. And even if the other uh, kingdoms have an issue with you taking their share of the stuff, in the long run, Paxiwal's navy and their adventures, if you will, ended this threat, so it was still a benefit to the other nations. So I will say that there is no political fallout by them taking that stuff. 
at the same time, since the our group of characters did, I mean, really the heavy lifting in this um, and were uh, integral, integral in this success of the large amount of wealth that was brought back, um, the, I guess you could say, ruling council of Paxwell or the Merchants Guild, the Merchants Guild who really, on behest of this, New Mexico, the Navy, have decided to um, give a small portion of that as a thank you to the characters. A, because they were very useful to them, and that might be something, this is a group of people that Paxwell's leaders may have use of again. You know, the temple and the mage tower, they know what quest these group are really on, but to everyone else, the merchants, the army, and the navy, this is just a group of four people that successfully ended a major threat to the country and uh, are very friendly to the kingdom, living inside of it at this point. So, um, you know, that's something you want to hang on to. Um, let's see. Gehardt says, how is Buffy? Uh, just real quick before I continue. Yeah, Buffy is my kitty. Buffy is doing very well. Uh, she had a little uh, sore in her eye, like a cold in her eye. Uh, but it seems to be perfectly fine now. The medication seems to have cleared it up. Uh, she has a visit with the vet on Tuesday just as a checkup. But so far, she's running around, and she may make an appearance. She's been climbing all over my desk today, so you guys may get, may get to see the kitties as well. All right, so when the, when the characters got back to Paxawol, like I said, the uh, they don't they just walk off the ship with a chest of wealth. Um, that was basically given to them a couple days later. They returned to the temple, um, and of course immediately met with uh, the two of the three clerics, because... Uh, Brother Lycos is still off protecting Pandora's box. And um, Bart and Sister Mara met them and, like, awesome, told them the story, uh, explained what, you know, everything like, that they saw as, again, what is, what, how the stone was used and how it affected things. And uh, the characters, of course, are very, very intelligent, and very intelligently know not to merge it with themselves. This person potentially lost all their self-control and was taken over by the stone, but they can merge it with different items to give those items abilities should they need to. So hypothetically, if Darsh was to merge the water stone with his sword, what could happen? You don't know. Maybe it has a water blade on it. Maybe it does damage against fire-based things. Um, you know, it, it could do any number of things based on what the, the stone and the item merged together kind of combined to do. So after a day or two at the temple, after telling a story, resting up from so on and so forth, um, the mer several members of the Merchants Guild showed up um, at the castle and proceeded to you know, thank Darsh, Dandy, Mercy, and Artemis for um, their work and assistance there, giving them the small reward and letting them know that they appreciate them as citizens of Paxiwal. Um, the characters was not lost on them how often they mentioned citizens of Paxiwal um, and kind of got a little bit of that uneasy feeling like, okay, yeah, you're, you're trying to make me feel like we're, 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 we're passing through. We're here for a while, but we don't know if this is going to be our permanent home kind of thing. But, um, you know, they thanked them, and especially they were given some treasure. They had a little bit of coin on them, but not very much. The temple had been seeing to most of their needs, but, you know, they were being very careful not to, you know, abuse that. Um, so it's, this is a, a good little, good, again, it would be a small fortune uh, to most folks. And so... The characters talk it over, and they talk it over with the clerics, and they're like, you know, as much as we appreciate staying here, you know, we don't want to be guests here forever, um, they decide that they're going to try to make their own place to live here in the city. Um, even if it's only temporary, having their own base of operations, their own private home, gives them some privacy uh, in other ways that the temple does not. Um, allows them also to come and go a little bit more freely without, uh, you know, the restrictions of the temple. 
So they take several days, um, and they find in a you know, decent neighborhood, like any other city, there's your wealthy sections, there's your poorer sections, which is always way more of those. But they find a relatively nice section, and they actually get a, a relatively good-sized house. Um, it is two stories plus a basement. So ground level, above ground level, and underground level. The basement more really just being a cellar uh, and for like cold storage and things like that. And um, it came slightly furnished. Uh, the characters didn't need a whole lot. Um, Darsh, specifically, within the first few days, had to get the materials to build himself a bed. Uh, because there just aren't any beds in this town quite big enough for him, um, but he with the you know they were with spending some money and getting materials needed, they were able to put something together that was decent for them. And they uh, Dandy uh, took it upon herself to make sure that the house was protected. So not only did she go and personally replace all of the locking systems, buying locks from different places all over the city, because again, uh, Dandy's smart and knows there's a thieves guild here, and. You know, you don't buy all your locks from one place. If that one, you know, you don't want somebody else to have a spare lock there. And so she was able to uh, get the locks from blacksmiths and stores, and she replaced all the lockings on the home herself, as well as uh, put several different types of traps and stuff around the home, specifically on windows and unused. Like there's a, there's a, a side door and a front door, really the only two entrances and exits of the house. Um, but they did. She did go ahead and do that. There's a chimney as well. She trapped that. She let, of course, her roommates, if you will. The other characters know exactly, you know, what was where, so they didn't trigger them. Um, but this was a way to help protect the place. And then Dandy and Darsh, very quickly, um, after this is done, the basement's deep enough that they uh, very quickly start beginning to work on breaking out part of the wall and digging into it. Uh, they want to make a basically a hidden room. Um, it's going to be very basic, because neither of them really have skills to make secret doors or anything, but they can dig a hole and put a bookshelf in front of it. You know what I mean? Uh, luckily, Darsh being as strong as he is, it's very, you know, they can put something relatively heavy in front of it that the average person wouldn't move or would not think to move. And that's actually what they ended up doing. It took a little while to get that built because they did it themselves. Um, but I want to say they put like a, it was like a huge uh, like barrel of pickled fish uh, and it was like some like like bags of like metal shards and just things that they were super heavy that would take Darsh to really lift them. I can't remember the specifics, but it was a cool idea. Um, but it made it also very difficult for anyone in the party to get in there if Darsh wasn't around. Moving into the house or to their own little house there, they, you know, let the temple know, hey, you need us. Here's where we are. If you get any information about the next stone, so on and so forth. They send information to the mage tower as well, letting them know Again, hey, this is where I'm at now. If you have information, please, here's where we are. Because they are staying in contact with both the, the temple and the mage tower for information. But within their first few days, you know, they, they, they get a glance at several of their neighbors. And the neighbors themselves, you know, are mostly human. You know, maybe a well-off gnome or something like that in that area. But uh, mostly human. Uh, a little taken aback by a minotaur, an elf, and a kender. Mercy, being a female warrior, is the, the most average or normal person in the group, but everyone else definitely stands out. The, Darsh is scary and imposing. He's a huge, giant, black minotaur, 
he's just you know, at night you can barely see the guy. He's just he's very very dark dark haired and his horns, which if you remember, one is half broken off now. Uh, still, even before his horns, he's he's well over seven to eight feet tall. Um, but as imposing and as scary as Darsh is, nothing is more frightening than a Kender in your neighborhood. Kenders being overly curious, annoying, and thieves without knowing it. Because again, they do have that. They uh, they uh, they will steal things without realizing they've even done it. They're offended if you call them a thief. They would never consider themselves that. Things just somehow find end up in their pocket. Uh, that because of that, most of the neighbors really, really do keep their distance, with the exception of one. Uh, the neighbor directly next to them um, is a. They, they learn very quickly is a middle-aged woman who lives by herself. Um, she's very friendly. She came over within the first couple of days, and she brought them several pies. Um, Mercy and Artemis were, were very you know, pleasant. Thank you very much. We appreciate that. Dandy was out at the time doing some shopping and such. And hello, Teresa. <laughs> Welcome. Um, but uh, Dandy's out doing, like I said, some shopping, the lock stuff. She was still working on that. Uh, Darsh was downstairs, but as soon as they heard the knock on the door, Darsh stopped digging and such, you know. Trying to be, because that's what he was working on mostly in the house was, uh, you know, physical stuff. Um, Dandy was defending the outside, and then Mer- Mercy and Artemis were basically supplying the home. Getting foods, drinks, basic stuff that they need for the home. Um, getting all of that stuff in there. Furniture, making a point of getting a table and chairs. You know, basic stuff. Che- a chest to keep their stuff in in their rooms. You know, things that they might need. Uh, paper, quill, whatever. Um, when they buy things, they always have to make sure they get stuff that's strong enough to hold Darsh, like three regular chairs and one really strong chair. Um, stuff of that nature. And they're also buying supplies for their next trip. You know, they're getting several rules, spools of rope. If you were a D&D character, you're like, these are the things you would get on an adventure. They're buying several of each of those. They can keep them in their house. So when time comes, they don't have to run around and try to buy the stuff they need. Most of it's ready to go. Um, so that's everybody's job over the first few weeks in this new home is prepping it. But when Molly... The neighbor comes over again. She's a she's a, a plump lady, and like I said, her, her probably mid forties, early fifties. Um, lets them know that she's been living in the home next to them for a very very long time, um, and her husband unfortunately passed away several years ago. Um, he was working in the mines. This is back when Paxwell had mines. Uh, he was a foreman, but you know he, he he actually he actually died saving the lives of others during a cave in and. Um, she's very proud of him, but she missed him, you know, all that kind of stuff. They never had kids, so she pretty much just lives alone, and she makes her money making, or her, she survives by making pies. Um, she provides them to different stores and some of the small restaurants and inns around town. Um, she'll buy a lot of the, she has her own little garden behind her house, but most of the stuff she gets, she buys from the marketplace and then cooks them into pies. And so uh, her pies were phenomenal. Um, Mercy and Artemis thanked her for the pies. Darsh about shook her hand off. He was so excited to see the pies. As we all know, Darsh loves a good meal. Um, and the delivering of three hot pies uh, was was all he needed to just immediately fall in love with Molly. <laughs> and that ended up becoming a thing. I mean, every so often when they, they, they go out and doing things, they see Molly. Uh, she would like, hey, I have an extra pie. And Darsh would, that was it. You know, And, be, you know, Darsh isn't like, he's not goofy. He's a serious guy. But Darsh likes to eat. And, Molly just, they came, she would have come over and said, there's a pile, I've got an extra this, I brought this, I thought Darsh might like my chili. And she's not like flirting with him or anything, but you know, she's like, oh, he's a big boy, he must need a lot to eat, here you go. And, and Darsh very quickly 
comes to really, really like Molly, like in like a, you know, motherly kind of way. He's very protective. So a lot of times if she needs help around the house, you know, he'll go over and move stuff for her, hang stuff because he's just a big guy. He can lift heavy stuff, you know. Uh, so Molly becomes a, a, a good neighbor to them in a very short period of time. And Molly is also, because she works with Sonya, a great source of basic information. The type that the, the common person might have, although sometimes they don't like to talk about it, you know, to spread rumors. Uh, Molly's a little bit of a chit-chat, so she talks with a lot of the other neighbors, and she talks with people in the stores and the inns that she takes her stuff to. Um, and so she, uh, a lot of times, is able to provide some information to our characters before they get it from even the temple or the mage, or the mage tower. Um, for example, one of the things that they heard is that there is talk, whispers, of um, some type of army or war building to the west, on the other side of the mountains. Um, there are rumors that the kingdom over there is preparing for war. And Darsh and Mercy and Artemis and Dandy are hearing this information like, well, we've not heard any of that from the mages or anything. Maybe we'll have to... Uh, I have to ask about that. Because that's Thorman. That's the one kingdom in this group that also has... They've never been to it. It's on the other side of the mountain range. Uh, but it's also where there's a, a, a king that rules that. It's not a uh, dem democracy like Paxiwal is. Although from everything they've heard, good king. Not a bad place. But who are they building for war? What's going on with that? We should find out. So... They still meet up at the temple and, and mages every few days. And they, they get in there and they're, they're chatting with Sister Mara. And uh, Sister Mara, at this point, it's just Mercy and Artemis that have come in. Darsh and Dandy are off doing their own stuff. And Mercy and Artemis, there's no need for all four of them. They go in and meet. And uh, Sister Mara's like, hey, um, we've received a message from the mage tower that they would like you, the four of you, to come by within the next day or so. That they have something for you. Um... When asked, Sister Mara said, "I don't. They didn't give me any more specifics beyond that. I don't know if it's a, an item. I don't know if it's information. They're going to cast a spell on you." She goes, I, "I genuinely don't know. They just said it was important that you come by all four of you as soon as possible." Buddy's like, "Okay, we we can handle that." Um, she also says that um, when she when asked about the war to the west, she seems a little bit surprised. She said, "Yes, there have been rumors of that, although we've not heard anything from Thorman specifically." Um, they don't appear to be building up any type of naval forces and they're definitely allowing our ships in and out to trade as normal so no hostility towards us has been seen but you know even if they're your neighbors and your friends you, know, you still got your little bit of spies over there and um, our sources she says do say that um, they appear to be building up forces uh, on their you know on the on land side the north through the east which is odd because east is the mountain range, but north, no, Paxwell really doesn't know what's north of there. Um, other than what few people have traveled, there's a large distance, and from what Thorman has said, that there's really no cities or anything to the north. So, it's odd that they would be building some type of military force in that direction. Uh, excuse me. So, I appreciate that information. That's important. They also hear some information. Uh, there's also that of some trouble to the north of Paxwell, relatively up the direction that the characters originally came down from that north uh, to get here. Some talks of some raids on some northern villages, um, and even some uh, injuries and uh, uh, 
murders, whatever you want to call them. There basically has been some attacks on some of the very northern um, outskirts of Paxawal's land, the very border of what Paxawal considers it its territory. Um, and so the, at this point, the military of Paxawal is looking into it, but they don't, they don't know exactly what's going on. There's just been attacks of it. They, they've sent a small force north to try to get a feel for what's going on to see if they need more security. So these are things that are going on but don't directly affect the characters at this time, but it's important to the story later on. They, this is when they first find out about these things. No other luck on the stones. The other stones they're looking to find, if you remember, there were four prophecies, if you will, or four visions given to Brother Bart by his god, the god of light, goddess of light. Um, and the first one, of course, was led them to the Waterstone. They're not sure. So, nothing so far in their research has come up with the others. So, the characters, the next day, all four of them, you know, early on, send a message ahead that they're going to be visiting the Mage Tower. Uh, they arrive and are escorted in. Um, and they're taken up to the same room that they were take, They always are taken into. It's a little kind of like um, boardroom-looking thing where they, they usually meet with mages. And the only one that's there this time is um, Lamia. And Lamia, if you remember, is Lamia the Red. She is what would be considered the neutral uh, mage of the three mage leaders. There's one of uh, good and neutral and evil. There's one of each. Although it's the uh, god, uh, cleric... I'm sorry. Ugh, the, the mage of... Good. That is technically the head mage. There, these three are work together. Um, she arrives at just Lamia. And Lamia is again an older person. Not she's very uh, very short to the point. She's not. I wouldn't say mean, but she can be a bit rude in just her delivery. She just doesn't have time to fool around. And her her dedication is magic. And if you're bothering her for something that's not furthering her magical learning or goals, then you are wasting her time. But when uh, they arrive. Uh, they're taking in there, and she seems to be in slightly better spirits than normal. Um, obvi- almost obviously so. Uh, she's actually a bit more pleasant as well, and uh, offers them something to drink and eat, even so much as to pour the drinks themselves, which she's never heard herself, which they've never done. And they're like, okay, you know, what do you want, kind of thing. You know, they're a little concerned, but she genuinely seems pleased to see them. She talks to them a bit about what they found out and um, what, what happened on their adventure, and to get the Waterstone, asks to see the Waterstone. They let her, she sees it, she returns it. I'll, I'll find there. She's very interested in that because, again, Lamia is um, an, a specific type of mage that focuses more on the making and use of magical items. That's that's her specialty. She, um, items, you know, that doesn't mean she doesn't have you know, fireball spells. She can do all that kind of stuff too, but her specialty is she likes magic items. She, she researches them. She makes them. She's trying to figure out how some work that they find themselves. Um, so these stones are very much for her, and that's why of the three main wizards, she has become their point of contact. Uh, she's the one who's she's got her people doing the research on it and so on. Um, and she even speaks of, 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 of Tevin. If you remember, Tevin is the young man that kind of stowed away with them from uh, the north through the little uh, community that was up there and uh, wanted to become a mage. And he did join up at the tower and is actually an apprentice under one of Lamia's underlings, if you will. And she talks to Tevin. She goes, she goes, I must say, I must thank you for delivering Tevin to us. Um, he has become quite the interest to myself. The young boy had 
very basic, rudimentary knowledge of magic. Most of it self-taught through old papers and a journal that was his uh, uncle's. Um, but he has a natural gift for it, so much so that he's excelling in his studies. He's already, in, just in the last several months he's been here, he's probably you know, ahead of where most apprentices are a year to two years in. Um, his natural aptitude for magic is almost unequaled. I'm not saying he's powerful, but his interest and his ability to adapt to it and to understand the difficulties and challenges of the inner workings of magic uh, come to him very simply. Um, and he also shows an interest in magic item creation and the study of items and artifacts. Um, and so he's, he's definitely popped up on her radar, so much so that he is now still an apprentice, but he's basically graduated a step where he actually works under her specifically. He still has his studies with other, you know, there's like classes at the temple and such, if you will, but he he still now will actually assist her on some of the things he's doing, and, and she finds him to be very, very good. He's quiet, doesn't talk a whole lot. He's focused on his tasks. He doesn't bugger with useless questions. If he asks a question, she feels that it's a very challenging question. It's something that, okay, it's, she has to think on it. It's not something common. And so she says, he, has, she shows, he shows great promise. So she appreciates the party's um, hand in bringing him into the fold, if you will. She said, he, it was, in fact, it was he that um, suggested an idea of why I have you here today. Um, I have a gift for all four of you. Now, this gifts, um, I guess we could say, are almost a little bit more like a loan, if you will. Uh, they're creations of my own. Um, but when talking with Tevin of your journeys and what you're looking to do, one of the biggest challenges that we realized was going to face you uh, was going to be your ability to travel to and from Paxawal. It is great distances in this new world. The world is vast and kingdoms can be very far apart. I mean, just on in the ocean, you were gone for a month plus just on the to get this water stone. You were gone for a while. So as you travel potentially further and further to try to find these stones, you're going to have a lot of travel time under your belt. And so I have something that we're going to give you to use. I have one for each of you. And she goes and opens up a small box. And what she pulls out is, it's about this tall. So we're looking at maybe about six five, half, six inches tall. And it is an obelisk, if you're familiar with the term. So imagine a pyramid, but it's it's much, much smaller at the base. So it's tall and thin instead of thick like that. Okay? It is made of a very, very smooth black stone. There's no real um, symbols on it that you can see. There's no etchings. It's not cracked. Uh, Gerhardus, sorry, I have to go. All right, that's all right, Gerhardus. I appreciate you swinging by the stream today. You have yourself a great day. Um... The obelisk itself, um, like I said, has no etchings or symbols or anything like that it can see. There's no cracks. It looks like a very uh, solid obsidian block, and it is made of obsidian. She takes four of them out and sets them on the table. They are wide enough at the base that they sit perfectly flat, perfectly fine like that. And then under the same box, she pulls out four rings. And you could tell they're very plain bands, uh, rings that would work just like uh, it looks like a, a plain ring for your finger. I mean, it's nothing fancy, nothing etching on those either. And she takes these rings and she sets them on the obelisk and they slide down about halfway and they kind of stop there in the center. 
you know, because that's, that's, it gets wider as it goes down. That's as far as they could go. And she explains to them that these are rings of central teleportation. It's a magic item that she's designed and created. And basically, when the wearer of this ring has the ability to teleport to the location of where the obelisk is. Now, it takes a large amount of magic to do so. And once it's been used, it cannot be used again for 30, or no, it was 28 cycles. 28 days, basically. Um, it takes for, this, for, the, for the obelisk to refill in power in order for the ring to, to return them again. So it won't help the characters travel to wherever they're going. But once they get to wherever they're going, they've got a way to get back. Um, Okay, as a, as a DM and knowing the story and building the world as massive as I did, I have several different ways, and so most of them we haven't come across yet, several different ways to be able to travel about Mer's World with it being such a huge world. Uh, just normal you know, walking in horses is not always going to cut it. Um, this is one of the first things that I introduced into the story that allowed the characters basically a little bit of fast travel. Um, because travel a month to get somewhere, travel a month to get back, you know, some of these characters are human. They're not going to last that long in these type of adventures. So, um, The Ring of Central Teleportation is given to each of them. Um, and they're basically told to, you know, they can put it in the temple. Or they can put it somewhere, you can put, hide it in their house. No one's going to know they have it except them. But with the Ring of Teleportation, as long as they're wearing the ring, they're given a command word, as the ring will take them to that location where that obelisk is. Now, somebody takes the obelisk and takes it somewhere. Um... The obelisk is about unbreakable. Not completely. Anything can be broken if you try hard enough, but it's relatively unbreakable. Um, but if somebody was to steal it and take it to their house, then when they teleport back, they're teleporting to where that obelisk is. If that obelisk has been thrown in the ocean, the characters are going to have a bad day. So um, keep it well hidden where it won't be found. The characters are ecstatic. They're like, well, this, this is, this is a, a wonderful gift, and, and we appreciate it by far that you're giving it to us. And again, she were kind of lending it to you. But yes, I think as you've already assisted Paxiwal with the by your, doing your own goal of returning this one stone, you've assisted Paxiwal and, and made it safe for our navy and our ships to trade with the other kingdoms. You've benefited us, and I have no doubt that you will be beneficial to us as a nation again. So helping you only helps ourselves. So once again, nice and friendly, but to the point, I'm helping you because it helps me. That's the only reason I don't like you that much. So um, that goes pretty well. So they take the rings of uh, central teleportation back to their house. Uh, they hide them in that hidden room down in the basement area, which they were already building anyways. Uh, Zabax, hi, I'm French. Well, welcome, Zabax, and welcome in French. <laughs> um, excuse me. So now they have a quick way to get home. Uh, that makes things a little bit easier for them as we move forward in the story. Uh, they hide them in the basement. It's dandy traps the heck out of that room at this point. If someone does find and decide they want to move these big heavy things that are blocking the huge shelves and stuff that Darsh has put on there, they're going to have a heck of a time doing it. Uh, but if they do get behind that shelf somehow, then they have to worry about Dandy's traps. Which, again, Dandy's sweet little thing. Man, she can make some painful and damaging traps when she needs to. She's very good at that. So another week goes by without much going on. They start to settle into a regular routine. Um, Darsh and Mercy, a lot of times spending time at the different inns, bars, 
down at the docks, talking to people, seeing if they can get any information, and anything new happens, rumors, something that might lead them towards one of the stones. Artemis spends a lot of her time uh, at the temple itself. Um, Artemis, you know, spent a good, for her first 80, 90 years of her life at temple life, and, you know, it's something that very peaceful that she enjoys. Um, she also enjoys the pull of adventure as well, but she, she's enjoying that and getting to know a lot of other, the other uh, clerics and such while she's there, and, and you know, making rank, if you will. And then Dandy just goes out adventuring around the city, finding out everything she can. In many situations, she's found things that are clearly um, marks of the Thieves' Guild. She's found storefronts, signs, or bars, things in alley, markings that she knows are a marking for thieves that this is a safe place, or this is an entrance to something. And she's It's killing her that she can't go in and find out what they are, but she thinks that she knows that it's smarter to let them come to her first. Just walking into a thieves' guild is not smart for anybody. Um, but there's times she can tell that she's being followed, or they try anyways, until she decides to lose them, or that she's being watched. Um, but no other communication is made out to her in any way. No one says anything, even when she tries to hint at locations that she knows are fronts for a thieves' guild. Everyone plays innocent, and, and no one lets anything slide. So she, uh, learning a lot of the, the lay of the city and where those entrances and things are, but not really making any connection with the Thieves' Guild itself. Which is odd, because even though most people don't like Kender, Kender are very beneficial to a Thieves' Guild. They usually can find their way into one. It's about, like I said, a week or so after they get their Rings of Central Teleportation, when finally they get some news. It appears that there's been an even larger attack to the north. And several villages have taken serious damage. And many lives were lost. Uh, the forces that were sent by the north, or sent north by the Paxwell army, um, did their best to defend, but were almost completely wiped out. What few survived were very injured, and uh, information was sent back as quickly as possible. Um, so a much, much larger force is about to be sent north. Um, all they know is that it was that they were attacked by a group of mix-matched humanoids. I guess that's the easy way to say it. So a mix-match of goblins, gnolls, you know what I'm talking about, uh, hobgoblins, things of that nature. So the your your uh, orcs, those classic villains or classic D&D um, lower level minions, but organized. Um, very organized and actually showing quite a bit of strategy. Um, there was also signs that they may have in their ranks uh, some form of mage or shaman as well, as magic was clearly used against uh, the city's defenders. Uh, one of the survivors was a mage that was a part of that military group sent by Park Paxwell to the north, a battle mage. Um, before he died, he was able to say that, you know, the spells that came at him were in uh, much, much higher than he would expect, or much more powerful than he would expect from a group of this nature. Um, and then the big thing, literally, is that they had with them a hill giant. There was at least one hill giant that was seen. And a giant is literally that. It's a really big thing. And Hill Giant, um, working with these lesser races, not completely uncommon or rare, but um, especially in the organization, it seemed there were at least several hundred of them involved in the attacks. So the, the, the 
army is sending a large group northward. Now, the head of the military has sent an envoy to the temple, who is sending several clerics along as well. Of course, the mages are sending along some of their, you know, mages, if you will, to um, help take on whatever magic is going on. And has also sent out an invitation to the party to tag along. Um, they're like, you know, I don't think this has anything to do with what you're looking for, but um, you showed yourself incredibly competent um, assisting our Navy in an incident they were having, so I don't see why you may not be just as beneficial here. Again, Artemis is a pretty pretty good cleric at this point. Darsh and Mercy, pretty good words. Darsh is just big and scary. So if nothing else, you know, having someone like that on side may be a little more imposing to the other forces. So um, they've clearly proved their abilities at one point. So like, yeah, we'll take you again. The party's like, we've got nothing else going on. We're being asked um, to help out this city who's doing a lot of stuff to help us. So why not? You know, if, if we've got our little rings, if we get messages or something now that says we need to get back to the, to the city, we can always do that. So... They pack up their gear, set things up, say goodbye to Molly, who says that she'll keep an eye on their house for them. Um, they, Dandy makes it quite clear she should not go inside. Because Dandy's like, because you go inside, things might hurt you. Don't go inside. So she's like, oh, okay, I'll stay outside, but I'll keep an eye on it for you. And they appreciate that. But after a few days, they're packed up, ready to go, and they travel north. It's pretty quick. It's like within 24 hours, they're gone. Now, if you'll remember, it took them several weeks to get from what was the border of Paxawal, if you will, the edge of their lands, when they first met the the first farming community that got them started, where they technically found Tevin. Um, and Tevin, for the record, it's made known he asked to go along as well, since his family lives on the north, uh, but he is still an apprentice, and that request had been declined. Uh, so he actually, for the first time, had came and saw them and asked if they have a chance to please check on his family, and if they let him know that he's let them know that he's okay and that he where he is, and that uh, if if they need anything to reach out to him, which the party agrees to do. Um, but the group packs up and heads out. Take, took a, three weeks to get there. This one, of course, is going at a much higher speed. They're traveling with a military convoy. They have horses this time. They did arrange for one big enough for Darsh, uh, so they're all able to go at a pretty good speed. Uh, that three weeks, they're able to break it down to a little over two. Because again, Darsh and them weren't, weren't really pushing themselves. They were going casually on the way down. Um, as they're, the, the further north they travel, the more and more signs they see of the issues that are happening, such as refugees, people um, you know, just clearly packing up and heading towards Paxwell. Because again, you've got a, a force of anything to the north, right? You want to go to the city where the protection is. So a lot of people who've already lost their homes or afraid they're going to lose their homes and lives are packed up and are heading heading south um, to Paxawal itself, or at least closer to the city. Um, finally, they get uh, within a day or so of where the, the, the most outlying or the first city that they know of was attacked. Um, and when they're close to that, they're starting at a different village and they're told that that village was almost completely decimated by a second attack since the first one. Um, so the military commander pushes them even harder and they, they rush north to get to that. But when they get there, the city is, like they said, the village is about nothing at this point. There's a few 
just people hiding inside the burnt out buildings and such um, you know because they're not sure what's going on and if most of them are either hiding from the military or um, mostly because they're probably scavengers anyways but uh, the city's just in in, in, in pieces buildings completely knocked over um, you know fire everywhere and that's a big thing the whole place is burned to a crisp um, there, there's very little buildings left over at all now, the route that they went is a little different than the route that um, Mercy and the party traveled originally south, so they're not close to where uh, Tevin's family is currently. Um, they know they have to travel a little distance, so that was almost north, just slightly northwest of Paxiwal, where they're coming down along the mountain range. Uh, this is going a little bit more northeast, because that's where the main road kind of curves. It's a little bit easier to travel that way, especially in a large group. Paxiwal's roads and such are more developed there. So what few stragglers they find, a um, couple, of course, do come out and, oh, yo, thank God you're here to save us. And keep food, clothing, whatever, and the military decides to help. But they, they ask a lot of questions. What happened? And they said, oh, creatures in the night, flames everywhere, um, you know, all the buildings burning, people screaming, um, beasts and creatures attacking, uh, basically trees flying through the air. Again, these are the things, again, that people are kind of rambling, because it happened at night, you know. Um, there was definitely someone saw a giant figure walking around, swinging what looked like a tree, and buildings were just crumbling under the weight of it. Um, no one saw a dragon. They all asked, of course. This is the quest, one of the questions. Okay, fire everywhere. Did you see a dragon? And no one saw anything of a dragon. So if anyone who was thinking it was a dragon, it was not a dragon. Let me clear that up. No dragon in this part. <laughs> but uh, lots of fire and lots of damage. And theft, of course. You know, that's another big thing. I mean, what they were definitely taking things. Um, things of value. And even though, as the buildings were burning, most of them weren't burnt until after they'd already been pillaged. And, of course, everybody of non-value. And I say non-value... If you think about this, unfortunately, you know, people might take, kidnap some of the people, as, uh, put them in servitude or for whatever reasons they may think of. The old or the incapable, not so much. Children, not needed. Those just put down. Um, so, not cool stuff. The military is very unhappy, but our party is even angrier because they do not are, are very, very heroic people who do not like people being hurt, but especially don't like kids being hurt. This is a very big thing for this party. They don't like that. None more so than Dandy, who, seeing this burnt-out city, can't help but flash back to the Kender city that they came across so long ago that was slaughtered by the drow elves they were chasing. And this really brings us back to... this thought back to Dandy, something that she had kind of repressed and pushed back for a while. And... More so than normal, she becomes a little bit more serious and a little more morose um, and more deep in thought than you'd normally expect from a kender. Uh, but definitely it's taken a toll on her, even a little bit more than even Artemis, who just weeps at these, the sight of things like this. As you, you can understand, Dandy was affected by it. So... The military commander, I, I don't have his name, I apologize. I probably had one back in the day, but I don't have one because we never see him after this. But <laughs> the commander of the of the group that went up there um, sends out scouts to see if they can figure out what's going on. And over the next 24 hours, uh, scouts are sent out different areas and come back and report 
Um, and they don't find much at all to the northeast further where they're going, but back towards the northwest, um, they can see a large amount of tracks and such heading that direction because a hill giant's going to leave some footprints, regardless of whether it's raining or not. That's noticeable. Um, and so footprints and large just trampled underbrush, even wagons, things, horse hoof, you know, hoof marks and such. So a lot of track heading northeast. Military commander's like, well, clearly that's where they went, so that's where we're going to. Um, trying to get a check of their numbers is difficult because, again, they're all trampling over each other, but it's a fair-sized group. Uh, at least at least 50 to 100 is what the scouts are estimating. Now, the Paxiwal sent 150 of uh, its forces. On top of that, it sent five mages and five clerics. Um, all of Mid-level. I mean, like, not, they're not super weak, especially the clerics. Um, three of the clerics are healing. Um, one of them is a cleric of war. And one of them was a cleric of the light. And that's the elder one, and that's the one that's kind of in charge of the clerics. The mages are all battle mages, specifically trained in combat. And they're here just to fight. <laughs> fight fire with fire. Hello, James. So, yes, so... They start heading that direction. Now, as they are moving, you know, the next day they pack up and they start heading that way. They don't. They decide not to leave too many behind. They leave a small force of five or ten to secure the area, help the people there. But the other, everybody else is going to continuing up uh, because it's hard for a group of the size that is being described to them to somehow sneak around them, especially when, again, you have a hill giant. So at this point, they feel they're going to need their entire group. They're going to head that direction. They travel on for another several days, and they're getting closer to the mountain range at this point. And at this point, they've kind of crossed over the path that um, our heroes had traveled south. You know, our heroes had kind of, let me do it the right way, had come from the northeast down to the southwest. And this group had kind of come up from the south, that direction here. They came up this way and then like that. So they kind of crossed over it at this point. So they're not going near the uh, the valley where the battle in the Citadel fell, where technically our party died. Um, they're now kind of heading opposite that direction of that, but still north. The commander says that they know that near the top of the mountain range, and we get, or as you're moving up there, um, is a large forest. And the mountains kind of go right into it, almost like they just popped up in the middle of the trees. Very likely something caused by the merge. Doesn't look supernatural, but it's been that way since the very early period of the Great Merging. Um, and that's the direction that these tracks seem to be heading. They don't run into anything. They don't run any stragglers, no running around goblins or anything, no scouts of any kind. It just feels like they're following this big group of tracks. But it's heading directly towards that forest and not making any attempt to hide itself. Our characters ask, is it possible that they're doing this as some type of a trap? Is it a trap because they're being so obvious? And the commander said, well, that's always a you know, potential concern. It's also more likely that they're just not that smart. Goblins, orcs, kobolds, you know, usually not known for their high military uh, you know, uh, strategies. But something has got them all banded together, so there may be some thoughts, but still, it, it'd be hard, to, hard to, to build a trap that big. But they are definitely aware of it, and the mages are consistently casting spells to look for stuff and search for traps and all that kind of stuff. Oh, and welcome back, Arhardus. Hello. So, as they get 
as they travel here again over that time period, because again, I, I'm trying to really that it took several weeks to get where they are. Well, again, this was a, a good chunk of travel, even on horseback. The scouts come back and say that they're with, once they got within sight of the trees of that forest, they could see campfires along the edge of the forest. So the group there, the group of, mon- we'll say group of monsters that they're chasing, are definitely living within the trees because they could see some several goblins and such campfires around the woods. Not a lot, which would imply that most of them are inside the woods. But the woods themselves are a great size. Um, and the commander admits that they've never really had gone far into them. They're very thick. There's a lot of heavy underbrush, so it's not, you know, they didn't, other than potential lumber, which they have way more closer to Paxiwal, there hasn't been a need to come this far. This land right now is actually right outside of the area of what Paxiwal would consider its territory. So the commander's talking with, of course, his leaders, his commanders, his strategists, and the parties there. Um, and they're trying to kind of look at a group of attack. We don't want to charge down the trees. We don't know how many are in there. Talk about potentially trying to send some scouts in. If they could send some scouts in, get an idea about their numbers, that might work. Um, but without knowing really what's inside of the what you know of that forest, it's hard to know exactly the best way to attack it. And it's at this point that the characters offer to go themselves. They're like, well, you know, you have your scouts and such, but your scouts are also trained warriors as part of your group. They're trained to work with you. They use scouting, but they're also warriors. It might be best for you to have your numbers because if they come out of those trees in force, you're going to need as much numbers or as many of your warriors as you can, especially since we don't know how many might be coming out of the trees. Um, we're a small group who work well together. Dandy specifically uh, is good at this type of thing. Um, and, you know, Darsh maybe could blend in depending on, you know, what all races and such are in there. Um, so they offer to go in and see if they can get some information on what's happening inside. If they can, then they can, and they can get back, we're good to go. You know, they're like, okay, we can tell you how many's in there. They also make the option, Dandy does also, if they get in there and it appears that, you know, the group inside is not large. Maybe they could do something to force them out of the forest. And the commander is like, okay, I'm, a little, I'm not, what, what could the four of you do that could, you know, scare out a military force? And, and she just deadpan looks at him and she looks at him and says, trees burn too. And he's like, yes, they do. And the rest of the party kind of looks at Dandy at the side of her eyes like, that's a little out of character for Dandy, you know. But again, said so Dandy, even though she's still Dandy, she has those more common moments of, uh, you know, that you could tell she's lost in thought, thinking about the the past and, and stuff. She said, seeing this village burned out really gave her some flashbacks to the original one, and she lost a little bit of her mirth. The commander agrees, says he can give them, assuming that no milit- that the whatever's in there doesn't come out, uh, he'll give them 72 hours. Because they're going to have to travel a distance around, because their thought is that they're going to travel actually back southern and try to go up in the mountains some and come down into the woods along the mountain spine. I say the spine because, again, imagine, if you will, that the, the forest, we'll just say, is a round ball, and the, the, the mountains kind of come down almost to a spike to about the center of it. So as, as it's coming towards that spike, the mountains are getting lower and lower and lower to the point where it's, the, the trees are just kind of growing up onto it. It becomes more of a hill at the end. Um... 
if they are looking for anything, they're pro- you know, they figured that the, the bad folks, if you will, the monsters are going to be more looking for uh, a, a group of force. Because they have to, even even if it doesn't have a very smart leader, they have to assume that Paxwell is going to send up some force. There was already a force there, even though it didn't do as well as they would have hoped. They didn't realize it was that big of a thing they're going to, group they're going to have to fight against. But they're probably looking for a larger military. Um, and then the few little fire posts around the edge of the woods that they can see that do have some goblins or kobolds or whatever around there definitely uh, appear to be that, watching for watching outwards. It takes the party... You know, they, they decide to leave at night because, again, all four of them can see super well. Three of them have vision, and Mercy has her magical tiara thing that lets her see perfectly fine at night. They decide that it's best for them to travel at night because um, there's less chance that they'll be caught as they do get through and they can... They're going to have to go south a bit into the mountains and then try to climb through. Um, Darsh being uh, probably the hardest person to climb, he's not that he's a bad climber, he's just heavy. You know what I mean? And when you're hanging from things or walking through thin paths, uh, he's a large size, and you know rocks and dirt may crumble under his feet that the others could walk across perfectly fine. So that's the, uh, the biggest concern they have in situations of this nature. But they do exactly as they plan. They head down south of the mountain range, and then start working the mountain range up and into it. So, it takes them almost a full day to maneuver where they want to go around and into the mountain. And at this point, like I said, the mountain is more like a really spiky cliff. That's odd. It's, it's not like a massive mountain range with snow on the top at this point. It is definitely the more south you go, very, very quickly it grows. But where they're at now, it's not so much. So, they make their way into it. Uh, well, of course, Dandy is ahead of everyone. She's keeping an eye out, watching to see, you know, because the other people may have scouts or traps. This is clearly a way into the forest. Um, and they're not, you know, whoever it is leading this other group, probably not completely stupid. He's definitely, he or she's put together a pretty good-sized group. And keeping them under sway, which in itself isn't easy. Because most of these races would not bend the knee under a leader that was not of their race, I guess the best way to say it. Goblins aren't normally going to follow a kobold. Kobolds don't want to follow an orc, so on and so forth. They all were under Nihilat Firemoon. And that's really what our characters are worried about. They're like, you know, this this type of group of people, not far from where that battle happened, this could be the leftovers or the remnants of what was his military. Because he had an army of mixed races just like this that were fighting against the heroes' forces at that battle. Um, so what if he's the one in charge? There's hints that there's magic. I mean, they've talked about magic. Uh, a hill giant is doing what they're told. you got to be pretty powerful to have that under your belt. And even if it's not him, he had drow, and who knows what else in that flying citadel. Um, so the party is... At the same time, hoping that's not the case, but hoping that it is. Because if he is in there, there's a good chance he's got some of those stones. And if it isn't, there's a good chance they might be able to get even with him for all the stuff and the loss of lives and the loss of their own lives and the loss of the lives of their... They're assuming they're friends. They're hoping not, but they haven't found him yet. So they thought this was a... This was one of the reasons they wanted to kind of get in there first. Because if it is, they would like to know if that's what they're facing. Because it might be easier to take out Nihilat Firemoon, the darkness, if you will, the Baron, as he's known, 
more of a uh, sneaky in assassination type than it is to try to send in a battle because the 150 warriors sent from Paxawal and their five ma mages aren't going to be anything compared to Nylat. So it's good to have that information before they lead 150 plus men into slaughter. So they go ahead and uh, make their way in. As I mentioned, it took a good day for them to get into what they actually considered part of the actual um, edge of the forest, even though they're coming down a mountain side at that point. Um, they camp where they can rest. They don't use a fire. Dandy is, is going much further ahead of them than she normally would, um, because especially during the day, Darsh is very noticeable. And so they have to be much, much more careful to move at night. D during the day, Dandy's doing much of the scouting as she can. As soon as they get within what is the edge of the forest line, Dandy, by herself at this point, very, very quickly comes starts to come across um, individuals. But all in pairs. I should say that. Pairs. She never ever sees any group with less than two people in it. It can be ranging up to five to eight or even more, depending. But the groups are consistently mixed races. Goblins, hobgoblins, orcs, kobolds, several gnolls, she's noticed in there, and even some humans. And that was something that they didn't know of beforehand. She doesn't make, doesn't see anything about giants, and the trees where she's at at this point anyways in the northern section of this forest are relatively thick here. Um, but she comes across what are clearly cleared pathways that these races are using. And while they're moving around, it appears there is some type of a patrol situation. They're actually looking and traveling in a, in a, in a relative pattern, even though it's not the most uh, well-organized that Dandy has seen. Because Dandy has snuck into a lot of places. She's had to avoid a lot of guards... She's got some knowledge in this situation. And these patrols, if you will, are not well-timed. There's too many spaces between some and not enough spaces between the others. Um, it just looks like whoever's organizing that is not very military-minded. Doesn't have a lot of, you know, military strategy. Definitely got enough sway to keep all these races doing what that person or those people want. But... Very, very clearly, Danny's like, this is not a well-run organization. Danny wants to go back and tell her friends, but she's like, you know, I think I, I, I've got a chance to, to get a little bit more information here. So she starts, she goes out further than she's supposed to. This is a Dandy trait. It's time to go back. Oh, what's that over there? And she starts sneaking her way deeper into the woods. Dandy's very quiet. She's small. Even in the daytime, the woods are very dark. As I mentioned, they're very lush. They're very thick woods. Um, I would say if you're looking for a type of woods, um, very North American, um, we're talking like upper Canada area, Northwest territories, like where the trees are real thick. A lot people just don't travel really large trees. Um, it's like someone took a chunk of that and stuck it right here. And for the record, the woods are almost a complete perfect circle. I just want to say that. the woods themselves are a circle with the mountain range just coming right up into them. So... She's traveling around, moving through these dark woods and such. And as she's traveling in, she comes across a clearing. And in this clearing are a group of about 10 to 15 of this more mixed races. It's, pure, it's clearly some type of camp. 
it is in rough shape. There's trash everywhere. It smells. The latrine pit is definitely too close to where it should be. What they're, whatever it is they're cooking in the big pot over the fire over there, it smells just as bad as the latrine. And so there's just filth and trash everywhere. Um, but it's a mix. It's a mixed group of race of people. After traveling again for an hour, or so she comes across several different places like this throughout the, throughout the woods, at least through the northern woods area that she's searching. Um, again, averaging around 10 to 15, 20 at the most. Of the four that she finds, she finds a total of about, if she counts the, uh, the people patrolling, a little over 100 different mixed races. But again, still no signs of any hill giants. Uh, just the mixed races themselves. And again, not clearly no real organized military leadership. Because if there was, they would not let them live in such squalor. Their weapons are strewn about. They're not, you know, kept at arm's length. Whoever's running it, just leading these groups kind of do whatever they want at this point. Finally, Dandy thinks she has enough information that she should go back to her friends. Plus, she realizes she's a couple hours overdue and they're probably worried, which they were. But they're also understanding that Dandy does this. Dandy, if something happened and, you know, she thought she was going to get caught, Dandy may lay low for a few hours and just lay there in the dark, which is so boring. It would drive her crazy, but, you know, it would happen. But Dandy makes it back to them and, and kind of explains everything that she's seen and everything. And, and Mercy and Darsh specifically, both being from a very um, um, military background, are very surprised to hear Danny's definition. Oh, Neon pops in, comes in, hears about living in squalor. Moog, yeah. No, sadly no Moog. Goblins, hobgoblins, orcs, gnolls, um, and the like. Kobolds, all them mixed in here. <laughs> sadly no Moog. Uh, but um, they're like, okay, then this is clearly then whoever whoever's leading them is leading through power. The fact that there was magic, supposedly, means that it could be they don't think it's the drow because the drow are way too intelligent and military minded just in their own society to let this happen. To let this, they would have them in much, much organized groups. They don't think it's the drow. Um, and these are the same clues that the party, while playing the game, they came across as well. These are what they came, they had to figure out what they thought it was or who was in charge. So at this point, they're thinking they don't really think it is Nylat because if it was Nylat, Nylat's army was way more organized than this. What little they saw of it before they had to fight it. Um, Nylat doesn't seem the type to uh, let this type of stuff happen either. So they're very, very surprised. They don't know exactly what could be causing it. Now again, at this point, they're kind of up in the hills still. She's come back up in the mountains a little bit. So they're a little bit higher into the tree range. And they can kind of see the tops of parts of the forest at this point. They're staying low. That's one good thing, being up high and everything being low. The trees are blocking a lot from being seen from within the woods as well. Um, but they're just kind of hanging out there and talking. And while they're doing that, it, Artemis was listening, but she doesn't know much about the military side of it either. That's not really her thing. So Darsh and Mercy were really talking military, and Dandy was talking scouting and best ways to approach into deeper into the woods. And Artemis, with her incredibly good eyesight, was just kind of hiding down, watching the forest to see if anything you know came their way. And it was, no one heard it, but she saw it. Off in the distance towards the center of the of the forest, she saw a big gust of flame come out of the trees. Caught her by surprise, she gasped. That's enough to get her friend's attention. They come over and like, what is it? And she explains what she saw, a gust of flames. Now, this came 
through under the trees. The trees themselves very tall. I already, I already said these are some of the old, large redwood type kind of trees. Um, so the flames had to be even higher. A huge gust of flame, probably 20 to 30 feet in diameter, came blasting through the top of it. Straight up and then down. It, was, it wasn't there for more than a moment or so. And even from where they are now, they can still see a bit of a smoke from that area. That's not normal. And the party's like, well, that's clearly something we need to look into. And talking to Dandy, that's further than she had gone in in any of her direction. She was a little bit more towards the... She'd gone... Because they're going north, remember? She went north in, and she was kind of handling the area that was north uh, east section, because that's the section that uh, Paxwell's military is coming up at. So this is the this is the mountain range, the ball of forest, if you will, is at the top of it. And they're coming up this direction, so she was watching to see if there was a lot of military inside the tree on this side that would end up combating. So that's where she focused. Because again, it's a huge woods. It could probably take days, if not weeks, to search the whole thing. It's a massive, big forest there. They're like, okay, we need to go in. Danny's like, should I go in and just search myself? And at this point, they're like, no, that's a little bit more than we want you to handle. And uh, to be honest, Darsh and Mercy are afraid that Dandy gets in there and gets more curious. She just may not come back next time, which is always a concern. So she, they decide that they should all move in together. Um, Artemis is very quiet. She's an elf. So naturally, she, she is still wearing her uh, blue robes. Um, but at this point, she has gone ahead and she's wearing just like a duller travel robe. She has some nice fancy robes. She left those at the house. Uh, she's wearing more of like a duller travel robe. So it's not as bright and shiny as well. But she does have that really blonde hair. So she ties it back and tucks it into her hood as best she can. Um, Dandy is very colorful normally in her clothing choices. But she can get dark and she can get hidden very well when she needs to. In the shades of the trees, even though he's the largest... Darsh is actually going to be relatively uh, in good shape because it's pretty dark in there and he'll have the easiest time walking through the underbrush than everybody because he's just so tall. Um, Mercy's probably the one that actually has the, is going to be in the worst situation. She's also, like Darsh, is wearing some chain and male armor, um, which in itself can be reflective and you know tree branches hitting metal, not good. She's shorter, so she's more. she's very short as well. She's chance of running into that underbrush. So Darsh, it's clear that at this point, Darsh is actually going to go first. Dandy's going to scout right near him, but she's not going to get far ahead. She's going to be just kind of circling them as they travel to make sure there's nothing in front, but then nothing behind as well. And then Mercy and Artemis are going to stay really close behind Darsh, let him kind of clear the way. And so they go that way. Traveling in through the forest is not easy. Um, there are several times that Artemis has to stop herself because as they're traveling through the woods, she sees different plants and such, things that, uh, um, even like mushrooms, things that, that would be very, are, 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 would be spell components for uh, healing potions or for uh, healing salves. She sees a lot of things that are actually normally rare just growing everywhere in these trees. And that's something that's like, I definitely need to let the temple know about this. A lot of what would be rare or expensive spell items are growing here bountifully. Uh, to the other three, they don't, they're just stuffed to them. It doesn't matter. But Artemis notices all that. So she, she mentioned it to her friend. She'll keep it as a secret. But she's tempted to get some herself, but she knows doesn't really have time for that. Something she may have to come back for later. 
and they make their way through. As they're traveling, they decide this time to go a little bit of an arc wide. So as you know, as I mentioned, they're coming up, right? And this is where the thing was. In the middle is where they see the flame. They're going to go kind of around it, come at it from the side, just because they don't want to go straight up into it. Because again, just the way that land the land works and such, it's going to play to their favor that way. I had a, a map drawn with topography and where the hills went and such. So when they were making their strategies, it was definitely based on what the land was like at the time. <clears throat> I still have drawings of a lot of those maps. Uh, if anyone's ever interested in me trying to post them up, they're not very good. I'm not good at drawing maps, but if anybody ever wanted to see what some of the maps of this area looks like, let me know. I can always throw them up on the Discord channel or put them up on the website. Um, I do have uh, a lot of my poorly drawn maps of these areas and of landmarks that I could share with you if you'd like to see them. Um, so they're traveling. Now, because they're traveling through an area that Dandy doesn't know, they're being a little bit slower and a little more cautious. This isn't where Dandy scouted before. And they, as a group, come across one or two of those little clearings where, we'll say, minions are just hanging out. And now that they've seen the big burst of flame, if you will, paying more attention, they can see that these clearings are clearly been burned out. Where they're living, the underbrush has been burned back. There's, there's just stumps there. The trees have been, are missing. I say missing because some of these trees are big. If they'd have broken and fallen over, you'd have seen them. The trees are missing, either burned up or removed. Um, but a lot of the underbrush and everything has just been burned away. And so they, I can't help but wonder if that flame stuff is the same thing. But the second clearing that they get to, this isn't the one that they were heading to, at least based on their mappaging, which isn't easy when you're traveling in the woods, but the second clearing they come across is twice as large as any other one that Dandy has seen. And the only thing in the clearing is a loudly snoring hill giant. Is from head to foot, looks like he's about 22 feet tall. There is a very poorly made club laying on the ground next to him, fashioned from a, a huge tree itself. Um, again, there are is trash and stuff strewn about. No other minions that the, they can see. It's just the hill giant. Um, but there is a fire pit there, and uh, you know it, the stink of old bones and such, uh, and of of humanoid waste definitely coming from the outer rings of the uh, clearing itself. So it's uh, stinky and scary because this is a really, really big dude. And it confirms that, hey, there is in fact a hill giant. Hill giants being some of the least intelligent of the giants, fortunately. There are some way worse giants out there. Maybe we'll see some one day. But a hill giant not that bright and not as big as some of the others. So they're like, they're, they're kind of stuck in a spot because they need to get past it. And they could go around, and that's their first instinct. Let's go around and see what's in this other circle, or you know, to where the flame gout was. But Darsh is hesitant. He's saying, he says to the party, he's like, this is a hill giant, and it's probably, unless they, again, whatever magic they have, of the forces we've seen, our forces of Paxawal could deal with most of these humanoids. Every warrior of Paxawal is worth 10 of these minions running around. But this hill giant could be a serious problem. 
Here it is sleeping in the middle of the day in a clearing by itself. This is the perfect situation to potentially take out a very serious threat. Artemis is not a fan of this. Artemis does not like killing anyways, but she has a bit of an issue of attacking something while sleeping. Mercy is a warrior. She sees it from both sides. Yeah, it's not very honorable, but at the same time, how many lives were lost or could be lost to this thing if we allow it to attack Paxiwal's forces along with all the other minions that run around here? It's definitely a big threat. Dandy, normally not the killing type, wholeheartedly says, let's kill it. In her mind, all she can see is that thing swinging that club at the families and homes of that last village they were at. And in her mind, this is the thing that causes the problem. So Dandy's like, I say we kill it. Which makes her friends a little uncomfortable because they're like, this is not how Dandy normally asks, acts. And they know what's bothering her. They, I mean, she still talks to them. It's not like she's keeping it bottled up inside. She's a kender. She could not talk about it if she wanted to. But they have to, you know, because there's some still concern for their friend and her uncharacteristic way she's acting. They talk about it for a little bit and they decide that they are going to go to try ahead. You're going to try to go ahead and take out the hill giant. Because again, if they can attack it while it's sleeping... They could maybe do some pretty serious damage to it and maybe even kill it, even if they can't kill it. If they could just do enough damage to it that it had to stay out of the fighting. Because at this point, they wish they had a mage themselves uh, because none of these ones here are really ranged fighters at all. You know, uh, Darsh can throw a javelin pretty accurately when he needs to. Um, Dandy can throw her knives, but the knives aren't going to do much against a hill giant at the range that they're at. Um, Mercy is 100% a melee fighter, and Artemis just doesn't have a lot of range. She has a whip and a quarterstaff. She's not doing much from a distance. Um, so they have to plan out a plan of attack. And what they decided to do... I still shake my head at this, because I remember it. Dandy's going to sneak in first. She's going to do her best to get behind the hill giant. And then Darsh and Mercy are going to basically come and attack it from the front, trying to get some hits in, trying to hurt it or kill it before it has a chance to get up. As soon as they start their attack, or if it wakes up and stands up to fight them for the charge or whatever, Dandy is going to do her best to hamstring it. She's going to try to cut and damage the back of its legs, try to make it where it can't stand. That's the... Even if they can't do anything else... Uh, Dandy's pretty precise with her little sharp blades and there's a chance that she could feasibly do some damage and if it can't walk, it can't fight. Artemis is going to stay back in the edge of the wood. She's not going to enter unless she has to and somebody's actually injured and then she'll try to do what healing she can. And again, I think I touched into this in the last adventure as well, <clears throat> but when it comes to magic and skills and abilities... Over the many years, I've customed and homebrewed a lot of it. I've changed the way some of the things work from the original books to match more of the play style that I wanted. Um, things that I thought were imbalanced, I tried to bring more balance to. And one of the things that I did is that if you are using a healing spell as a cleric, a lot of healing spells require you to physically touch um, someone. 
but I changed it where you can do a ranged, any spell that's a touch spell, you can do it a range, but whatever you roll for your healing, you cut in half. So if you roll, say you do a healing spell that is three die eights, and you roll eight each time, that's 24 hit points, you would have healed, touching someone, you're only going to heal 12 at a range. So your spell is not as powerful unless you're touching them. And for the basic healing spells, cure light wounds, cure serious wounds, so on and so forth, that's what I did. Because again, I can choose that thing. When it, I, I always thought that was odd. I understand the laying on hands thing, but if I can cast spells and put a blessing on someone from a distance, there's no reason I should be able to cast a healing on them from a distance. I'm still casting magic to do something to them from a distance. I felt that limitation was, was always my biggest issue with some of the healing spells. So, um, thought I'd throw that out there. So Artemis does have the ability to heal from a distance. She's just not as, doesn't do as much healing. So she will always try to heal, lay on hands when possible. So they've got their little plan here and it's early afternoon at this point and it's getting near the end of the second day and they know they don't have a whole lot of time to figure out what's going to happen and get back out before the Paxwell forces are just going to try to basically attack the force. Because um, they can't wait forever. You know, they have to assume it. For all they know, the party could have been captured or killed. So, the party, <laughs> they, they work out their plan, and Dandy rolls well and manages to get up very close to the very stinky, dirty hill giant. And she makes a joke, I remember, about stabbing it in the butt. But... She's tempted to, in her monologue, because Danny's like, I really, she would stab it in the butt, because that's just, she wants to hurt it. But she knows that could wake it up, and it won't do as much damage. And so she, she has to refrain herself, but she just has this huge design, desire to stab him in the butt. Butt stab. So back, backstabbing is a rogue ability. She liked to call it butt stabbing. So, so we, uh, everybody gets in position. Uh, Darce and Mercy are ready to charge in and attack. And part of it is they want to draw its attention. They, they, the thought, Darsh and Mercy are going to have a very hard time sneaking up on a hill giant. You know what I mean? It's big and it can heal here decently. Um, and there's stuff strewn all over the place from trash to bones to old pots or whatever. It's just trash. So the chance of them getting across the clearing quietly is very, very minimal. So by charging in, it may wake it up, but it will definitely draw its attention away from Dandy, which is their big their big goal. So that's what they do. Darsh and Mercy go charging in loudly, purposefully making noise, you know, screaming, not purposely trying to kick things because they don't want to trip, but they, they charge in as, as much as they can. Darsh is faster always. So he's a bit ahead of Mercy as they're, as they're running. He's just got way longer legs. For every one of his steps, she has to take two. So Darsh is ahead, but they go charging in. Although, in many situations, he's good at pacing himself if he needs them to be side-by-side. Side. But in a situation like this, he's fine with being the first one in there and taking the first brunt of the attack. As they assumed, the hill giant wakes up, a little surprised, not used to hearing these type of noises waking up, and he sees this big minotaur with a sword drawn running towards him. He's confused for a second. He's like, I don't, you know, how's that look like? I don't remember a minotaur. Why does it have its sword out? It has its sword out to get me. That's not good. 
So the hill giant stands up and reaches for his club. And the hill giant gets up on one knee and is about to lift himself up onto a second when Dandy uses that moment to attack the knee that... That's, imagine, you know, you got one knee bent and your foot on the ground, the other one's your knee with your foot behind you. She attacks the one that the weight is on. Being very careful that if this thing falls backwards that she has to get out of the way. This is understanding. So she very quickly attacks it with her sharpest, longest blade and starts slashing at the back of its legs, trying to cut at its tendons. Hill Giant's a very strong skin. And it doesn't cut through well. She has very nice blades, don't get me wrong. But they have a very thick, leathery skin, and the tendons and muscles are pretty deep. So the blades themselves is doing more like just, almost like just doing a deep cut across the skin. It's not really getting deep enough to damage any muscles. But it is enough to get his attention. The Hill Giant, instead of standing up, looks down to see what this thing is causing pain in its leg because he he yells out in pain and he sees this little thing with blades just on the back back of his leg and so of course like you would with anything trying to smack on you like a mosquito he tries to swat it she manages to roll out of the way successfully but the force of the impact of hitting the ground uh, does cause her a little bit of shockwave where she rumbles and loses her balance a bit but at the time that he's doing that, Darsh is close enough to get in and attack. And this is where the battle really started. Um, the, the, the battle itself was, was relatively quick. Um, when Darsh came in, he immediately went to attack on the legs as well. Even though he's on his knees, this thing is still, its stomach is 10 feet off the ground. He's not going to be hitting the head or the face. Um, Maybe if he really, really tried, but it would take him off balance and he didn't want to take that gamble. He also wants to protect Dandy. So he went for the legs as well. His blade immediately doing more damage. Because again, he's using... a he's For him, it's a one-handed sword. For a human, it'd be a two-handed sword. Um, and it's sharp and it's huge. And he's got a lot of strength behind him. So his blade starts cutting into the legs much, much deeper. And he gets several really good hits in before Mercy catches up at the same time that the hill giant stands up, even though he's getting stabbed in the leg, stands up anyways, because they're not bright, and begins to attack them as well. And that slows down their attack, because now they're trying to dodge basically a tree being thumped down on the ground. Darsh and Mercy pre-figured out that they were going to go different directions, try to get on either side of him. So if he's attacking one, the other one can attack him. Dandy just trying to get in while she can um, and that battle goes on like that for a little ways. The hill giant, not smart, is thumping that thing so loudly that it's echoing through the forest. And that becomes more of a concern. The longer this takes, the better chance something else may come to see what's causing so much noise. So, while they're fighting, Darsh again... They try to attack the legs whenever they can. Mercy's using a morning star, so hers is more blunt. So she's swinging more for kneecaps, if you will. Um, she's really strong, but again, it's it's not strong enough to bust a kneecap, although that's her goal. She never successfully pulls that off. Uh, Darsh definitely gets his attention, the giant's attention the most, because he's doing the most damage with his sword. He's also the biggest, the closest to the hill giant size, and so the hill giant sees him as the bigger threat. Dandy, not knowing what else to do, starts throwing some of her daggers. Most of them, even though they're good throws, end up bouncing off of it. And she realizes that 
she's not going to be able to do a whole lot from down here. So she decides not to stay down here. And Dandy, in a move of dandiness, decides to try to jump on the hill giant and climb up its back. The hill giant has pretty long, it's balding in the front, but it's got long, scraggly hair past its shoulders. And its clothing is just looks like old animal hides or cloths that have been just barely stitched together. And so there's lots for her to grab onto, uh, but the creature is swinging around with this tree trying to stab at Darsh or pump, squish Darsh and Mercy that it makes it harder for Dandy to climb. So it takes her several rounds to try to get up there. Each time, she's having to make rolls as a, as a character to make sure she can hold on, like someone trying to be on a bull, make sure that she can hold on and not lose her footing and fall off. But Dandy is very dexterous and very good at what she does, and she does manage to hold on, and after a period of time, does manage to climb up to the back of its shoulders. Now, it didn't really notice her at first. It was just hanging off her clothes with everything else going on. Didn't really realize it. But once it's up and starts pulling on her on its hair, because that's what she's doing, climbing up its hair and up onto her shoulder, he sees it, and with his free hand, tries to swat at Dandy. Dandy, just basically trying to stay behind his shoulders where he can't reach her, with her last remaining knife, is kind of stabbing at its neck. And this is irritating. It hurts. Little pricks of blood, but it's still not enough to do any serious damage. Although... Darsh and Mercy are still being held back because this thing's still swinging with the club and then tries to get Dandy and swings with the club and then tries to swipe Dandy off and then slams at them a couple times. So it's alternating what it's trying to do to keep everything at bay. Dandy's hoop pack is on the ground. It, it fell. She's not going to be able to... She, she wasn't going to be able to climb with that in her hands anyways. So she doesn't have her hoop pack. All she has is this last remaining dagger. And so not knowing what else to do, she decides to start stabbing it right under the ear. It's pretty soft there, even on a hill giant, and hurts. And she's trying to get a, a major blood vein, was the thought. But unfortunately, the dagger wasn't going to be able to get that deep. But that was the character's thought. But she was trying to stab, maybe she could stab a, a neck vein. And finally, the thing has to focus, and it turns to see what this thing is, and to reach for her. And she jumps on its hand and with one good throw throws that last dagger and gets it right in the eye. The downside is at the same time she's throwing it, it grabs Dandy. So as soon as it grabs Dandy, it starts feeling this huge pain in its eye. The hand that's holding the club drops, which drops a tree and Darsh, whoever close, Darsh I think was close to it had to roll out of the way. But it reaches up to find out you know, what's in my eye. It's a little dagger. It's hard for him to grab it, but it's stabbing him in the eye. You can imagine how painful that would be. And the whole time, it's just not paying attention, but Dandy's completely wrapped in its hand. She's trying to get out, but he's more worried about his eye, and it's bleeding, and it's it hurts, and he can barely see out of the other one because his eyes are watering up at this point. And Darsh and Mercy use this as their attempt, to, to, as their chance to attack in. And Darsh, again, going as best he can for the back of the legs... Mercy decides to take a play out of Danny's playbook and using her Morning Star, goes straight for the thing's groin. Uh, because it it's hard for her to reach. It's high, but she's going to make every attempt of it. And pain in its leg, pain in its groin, and this overwhelming pain in the eye, the hill giant is just not knowing what to do to stop it. 
And so the first thing it does is it wants its hands free and it just throws Dandy. And with one hand, it's trying to dig the knife out, which is just causing more damage. While with the other hand, now it's trying to reach down and grab Darsh and Mercy. Dandy goes flying through the air and all she she knows is everything's head over Terry and then she feels a large, huge, blunt, painful all of her body and then she's out. Thank you, Backyard Films 2, for the follow. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming by the stream today. So Dandy's on... Artemis sees from the trees what's going on. She sees Mercy and Darsh are taking a little bit of damage. She sees what Dandy does and then she sees Dandy hurled into a tree at the clearing and her body just crack against it and fall to the ground. Artemis runs to Dandy and she runs into the clearing at this point because, you know, the giant's far enough away from her and it doesn't have the club in its hand that she's not in danger, but she's got to get to Dandy. And she gets over there and Dandy's in some pretty rough shape. Like, she's not like all broken back or nothing. She's not batman out or anything, but she's she's definitely a broken like shoulder, dislocated and such, and Artemis immediately starts going into fixing that. First thing, by trying to relocate her shoulder while she's unconscious, but doing the healing that she needs to to, to, to keep her alive, because she's bleeding as well from a, from a lot of blood from her head, from where her head hit the tree. So that's what Artemis was doing. Sorry, I keep stopping to drink. My throat's a little bit drier than normal today. <laughs> so, um, at this point, they're successful in injuring the uh, hill giant enough that it falls over. Darsh has done so much damage to its legs at this point, and, and it's clutching at its sore groin, that it ends up falling to the ground, where once it gets in range, Darsh immediately switches to try to, to kill it by cutting its neck. He can't behead this thing, it's way too big for that, but one good swipe of his sword could be the equivalent of slitting a throat, if you will, and that is definitely his attempt. And it still takes several attacks, because the thing's trying to ward away with his hands. But he finally manages to do enough damage that the thing starts to bleed out and it's literally just dying. Very gross. Not very cool. It was a little bit more interesting in the actual playing of it, but unfortunately I don't have the notes from that battle anymore. As I mentioned many times on the stream, and I apologize, some of the early stuff was lost in the flooding of a basement. And so we are very close to getting to the point that I actually have the notes from the actual story. I still have all the notes of the world from that time, but the actual story points, I'm going purely off memory at this point. Um, so we're getting to the point that I'll be able to go into a lot more detail on some of the cool fight stuff that happened. But what I'm remembering, I'm trying to share as I can. But they managed to kill the hill giant. Darsh and Mercy rush over to Artemis. Dandy is now awake, but still kind of dizzy. They snatch her, and they just basically go running into the woods. They know that that's dangerous, just running into the woods without knowing where they're going or what they're going to run into could be a problem. They could run into another hill giant. They could run into whatever. But at the same time, with the amount of noise and such that was happening and, the, and them killing a hill giant, that's not going to go unnoticed. And they would rather be out in the woods, maybe come across one of their little... Uh, what do you call them? Uh, groups of people walking around. Forgetting the name of it. Uh, but then have a whole bunch of those run into to see what's going on. They, don't, they can't take 30 or 40 of these things of the minions. So they do their best to kind of crash through the trees and get it a short distance away to a place where they can kind of get Dandy rested up a little where she can hopefully take over again as a scout. So they're successful in hiding. They do hear definitely an uproar of different voices and yelling and such coming from that clearing because they don't get super far away from it, close enough that they can hear still. And clearly someone has come and found this dead hill giant. 
that caused the problem. So now they're starting to hear sounds of people moving quickly through the trees and running around, and they can tell that the forest is being searched. This puts them in a, in a much harder spot. They're no longer as, you know, somebody knows they're out there, even though they don't know who they probably are. They decide to keep heading towards that central flame as best they can once Dandy's up. And she feels okay. The healing has got her, her body still sore and ache, and she's got a little bit of a, like, still a small, like, marking of a, of a cut on her head where it hit the tree, but it's, it's healed up by the spell, so it's not bleeding or anything anymore. Um, I did, for the record, as a DM, give her a negative temporarily to some of her roles because of that. But, you know, just saying. Uh, she, again, begins leading him to that because source of direction, she's still the best to go. It takes them about an hour to get to where they were looking for in the trees. And it wouldn't have taken as long, but there were several times they would have to hide or backtrack to avoid a patrol. That's the word I was trying to think of earlier. To avoid a patrol. <laughs> um, but they get to the edge of that center area, and that center area that they're looking at is actually a much, much larger clearing, even more so than the clearing where uh, the hill giant was. And, in fact, the, the mountain range almost comes to a close end at this point, and the um, southwestern part of the clearing is actually a bit of a hill. That begins kind of where the mountain range starts. And they can see that there's an opening into that. There's some type of cave or something going in there. There's also a huge bonfire in the middle of this clearing. And there are at least eight to ten of those humanoids. Mostly in this area, there's goblins, hobgoblins, and several gnolls, two humans, and there's just one kind of kobold running around that appears to be almost like a minion to the minions, running around and fetching things and doing whatever. They can see outside the cave, up against the, you know, the side of the hill, a bunch of crates and wagons laden with goods uh, and wealth of taken from the, the cities and such. So they're like, clearly, you know, this is where the stuff was taken. Um, and there's the big bonfire in the center, but two other small bonfires a little distance off. And everybody's got, by this point, it's nighttime. And the clearing itself is still very active because they're trying to still figure out what's going on. These group are on alert. They have weapons and such. I mean, they're, they're not standing there with their swords out, but they're clearly out waiting to hear anything. And every so often, a goblin or a hobgoblin will come running, come running into the clearing, give information to one of them in whatever language, and then run back out again. And clearly, these are people making reports. And then, usually, one of the hobgoblins, every so often, whenever that happens, the information is given to that hobgoblin. That hobgoblin goes into the cave. Comes back out a few minutes later. Watching this, the party determines whoever's in charge is probably in the cave. That makes sense. Next to where all the loot is and such. Whoever's leading this group is in there. So, they have to figure out... There's no way they're going to be able to sneak into that cave. There's just too many things going on here. It's just not going to happen. So, they have to figure out something else. And what they decided to do is to use a diversion. <laughs> Dandy was going to sneak the opposite direction of them and cause a diversion, hopefully drawing as many of the things in the clearing in that direction in a chase into the trees. After a few moments, 
after whatever group follows Danny, Danny's going to try to lose them and then come back around. Darsh, Mercy, with Artemis in tow, we're going to charge in to try to, if any are left, to try to go in there and take them out. Darsh, Mercy, and Dandy are like, total there's like 12, it's averaging between 12 and 14, depending on who comes to the clearing and leaves. Um, that's a hard fight for all three of them. Darsh is like, with an element of surprise, he goes, if I can get, he goes, I can get to these first couple here pretty quick. He goes, I can take out at least two in the first couple rounds. And then Mercy's like, I, I don't have to get that one. So they're, they're trying to do their math on how many could they take and how quickly. The more Dandy can get the follower, the better off she'll be. But that does put Dandy at risk. And in her slightly injured situation, they're, they're a little nervous about doing it. But Dandy's very hard-pressed, like, yes, I think that's the best thing to do. If Darsh and Mercy can get into the clearing, take out whatever few are left, then the three of them, with Artemis, can try to go into the cave and take out whatever's leading them. If they can capture it, then maybe um, the rest of the minions won't, 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 won't kill them either. They can take it out, give them to the Paxawal. So their thought is we can capture or kill it, Whatever it is, we'll try to capture it first. As always, their plans... Always interesting. They were a really good group of, of coming up with interesting ideas of doing stuff. So Dandy makes her way around the other side of the clearing. And as the night is going on... Because they're, they're watching from a while. And being very careful that nothing comes sneaking up from them. And this is one thing I didn't mention. Most of the things that are coming... Um, like when I say things like goblins or anything that's coming into the clearing to give information is coming from the southern area, south, southeast, southwest. Nothing's really coming from the, I'm sorry, from the north, excuse me, from the north. They, like I said, came around it a bit. So they're up on, kind of round up on the edge. So everything that's coming out is coming down from the direction they came, but they're a little bit more north looking down into this clearing at this point. Northeast. And... Dandy is, they'll know when Dandy does her thing. They just watch for it because Dandy's going to make a loud noise or do something. She doesn't quite say what. She says she's going to get their attention. Always good. Dandy and everybody, they did retrieve as many, uh, most of Dandy's daggers. I should say that. Dandy has most of her daggers back. She usually carries six to nine on her at all times, uh, but they were able to retrieve six of them. And the other, no, five of them, I'm sorry. She had five daggers. The other ones were they weren't able to get. Just, you know, throwing them stuck underneath the bottom of a hill giant. No time to lift that up. Darsh might be able to do it. I'd be interested to see. But they go in there and they're, they proceed and they're just kind of waiting on Dandy to do her thing. At this point, it's getting definitely later. It's middle of the night. They're a little bit tired, but the things that are in the clearing are, have kind of settled down. They're not going to sleep, but most of them are sitting down around the fires or you know eating or talking or whatever. But you know the urgency of the Creatures coming, running in, and giving information it just seems to be coming less and less often because clearly they're not finding anything. They're having to go further and further out to search of what it was that caused the death of the hill giant. Suddenly, Dandy steps into the clearing, clear as day, hoopack in hand. And just calls out, Excuse me, does anyone know which way it is to the inn? I seem to have lost my way, and I cannot find the inn. Well, the creatures just pop up and look over to see Dandy, and she goes, Hello! Lily just, Hi! And they, they look at each other, and they look at her, and a, a group of them just go off chasing her, and she's like, Whoop! And she runs into the tree. Into the trees. Not run into a tree. I should say that correctly. 
Um, and she was carrying a torch. I, I forgot to stress that. She was carrying a torch. She walks out, she lit that real quickly, and then walked out with a flaming torch. So they can see the flaming torch running through the woods. That was how she was supposed to keep attention on them, and then eventually she was going to snuff it and sneak back. So she has a torch, and she goes tearing off. And a good half or more of the creatures in the clearing go chasing after her. That one hobgoblin rushes into the cave. And that leaves about six uh, combination of a couple humans, goblin, and a hobgoblin. Two humans, two hobgoblins, and a goblin. And there was a knoll. I'm sorry, so there's also a knoll. Trying to remember what all was still in there. And not, not wasting a moment, Darsh and Mercy rush in quickly, but trying to be a bit quieter in this one. And I will say that this clearing is a little bit better kept. So who, with the leader being here, they don't allow it to be quite as stinky and trashy. Um, but, you know, it's still not super clean. But they charge in and very quickly rush to the closest group of two, which are sitting by a small fire close to them. As those two try to get up, which is, was the knoll and a hobgoblin, uh, Darsh and Mercy just straight in and take them out in very quick hits. The others are a little bit further away, and hearing the sound of that commotion, draw their weapons and enter into melee fight as well. So, Artemis again staying back, uh, trying to throw heels when she needs to. Um, she did not stay completely in the woods this time, uh, because you know she wants to be close enough that they need help. Plus, she didn't need anything to sneak up on her from behind. That would be a problem as well. Because she has to be able to see them to cast her healing spells. And if she can see them, then anything they're fighting could see her. So, in this situation, with it being a numbers game, she's along with them, staying close. And she's got her little quarterstaff and whip that she can use as needed um, to try to at least defend the back of Darsh and Mercy, who try to keep her in between them. And they're fighting it out with these creatures. And a couple rounds go by. Somebody got a very good hit on, on Darsh. I remember he took a very large cut across his arm uh, between an armor. He had like some armor plating here and his shield. But he takes a, a really good gash on the back of his arm. Um, it was his shield arm, so his left arm. So it didn't affect his ability to attack, but it did make him a little bit harder to defend because that, that arm was definitely weaker. Um, and that was something he hadn't really had to deal with much, uh, that kind of a handicap. Um, but as they're fighting, you know, they're trying to be as quickly and efficiently killing these things as they can, because if the other ones come back, they don't want these ones here with them. And they're relatively successful. Uh, there's only like one or two left at the point that they hear Dandy come running up behind them, because, you know, she's saying, it's me, Dandy. She's not going to just run up behind them and get her head cut off. She lets them know it's her. She comes running in, she goes, I lost him, I lost him, I don't, we, you've got some time, or whatever it was. And she comes running in, and at that time, about that time, I hadn't said that yet today, about that time, something happened. The center fire pit erupts in flame, shooting straight up into the sky, like a straight column of flames, 60, 70 feet in the air. And as it goes up, smaller flames like tentacles are wrapped around it. Then it comes back down again. And it's still a roaring fire. But now at least it's back to you know, manageable size. And everything stops. Darsh and Mercy are like, okay, what's going on? The few minions, bad guys that are left kind of back up. Because they, they know what's going on. So they back up. Kind of put some space between them. And 
the party notice his movement from the cave. <clears throat> and of course, that one hobgoblin comes out, as well as the leader of these forces. I'm going to take another drink real quick. Ah, thank goodness. Okay. The figure shortens stature. Walks out. And seeing the group before him can't help but smile a little bit. Before I move forward, I guess I should ask, does anybody have any idea who it is? I'd be interested to know if anybody has any idea who it is. I'm going to wait a second, because there's a bit of delay. Let me see if anybody has any guesses of who I'm leading this up to. I'm going to eat this York Peppermint Patty, because my throat's a little sore. Give me a second. <laughs> oh, I dropped it. One moment. All right. Well, not seeing any guesses, so we'll step in. Oh, there we go. Neil says he thinks it's the kid that wanted to be the mage. Tevin! No, no, um, Tobias, I'm sorry. Tobias, I keep saying the wrong name. Tobias. Well, remember, he was the one that wanted to come with him and wasn't allowed to. But no, it is not Tobias. Tobias is still safely in Paxawell in the mage tower where he's supposed to be. The figure that comes walking out in his red robes Pretty good condition, red robes. Nicer than he's usually had before. Is incredibly short. And all too familiar. I should have known that one day you would be the ones that would be the thorns in my side. Zarin the gnome mage shakes his head in disappointment. I'll be honest, I thought you all were dead. I didn't think anyone else made it out of there. But I could see that you are all just as lucky as you've always been, haven't you? Artemis goes, Zarin, what are you doing here? I live here, he says. This is my home, and these are my people that you've been so brutally killing today, which I don't appreciate. I'll let you know, there's a, after the battle ended, there were a decent amount of these guys running around, but, you know, they, they didn't all hang around as long as I would have liked. So most of them looking for someone uh, to kind of take over, someone to lead them and, and get them out of there, because a lot of them were being picked off by the different knights' forces and Fire Moon's cursed people. I was there. And I was able to give them a way to stay alive. Fortunately, my magic was able to keep the knights at bay and make them think better about following us. Mercy goes, You're not that strong. We've known you a long time. You are a mage of capable abilities, but not enough to hold off the knights. Who do you work for? It was because clearly someone had to be helping you. 
He smiles again and goes, Oh, not someone, something. Trying to get into that castle, I lost my eye. And he reaches up and he pulls the eye patch off of Because if you remember, his eye got burned out by the acid of the, the plague of that cleric in the earlier event. He, he, he pulls off the eye patch. And in the socket area where his eye used to be is now a bright red smooth stone with flames just coming out of it. And of course our characters recognize these stones very, very easily at this point. Zarin, after the fall of the Citadel, had somehow survived the fall using his magic, shielding himself, feather fall, whichever it was. He had managed to injured, and as he was crawling out of the rubble, his hand touched on something smooth and incredibly hot. When he picked it up, he saw that it was a gem. Uh, it says to become a pyromancer. Not specifically a pyromancer. He's merged himself with the fire Visani stone. So it's the fire stone, so now he has control over fire. Much like the other guy had control over water. Although, Zarin is a much, much more intelligent and stronger of will, so the stone did not take him over as much as it did merge and kind of become a partnership there. Um, so that kind of a thing. So it just gave him... He still has all of his old magic, but he, uh, he has control over fire now. The flaming was purely what he can do with the stone. <clears throat> So, at this point, he's, he's smiling because he knows that he's way more powerful than they are at this point. But he also looks across and, he's, and he's, he sees Artemis' staff and she goes, he goes, you found a pebble as well. How interesting. I'd be interested to know what that one does, but since you've got it, I'm willing to bet... It's not going to do too much to hurt me. If it was going to hurt me, it would have been on one of these two fools' weapons. But you've got it, so I'm not too concerned. I'll be looking forward to adding it to my collection, of course. Uh, well, giving me a second one. Not sure where I'll put it. He jokes as he rubs under the chin under where he has merged the firing. So, so at this point, it's just like fire coming out of his eye. Not hurting him in any way, it's just flames coming out of his one socket as the stone is like a glowing ember. That's what the, the gem looks like. It's a glowing ember at all times. So not like radiating light, but like you'd see in a fire pit, that glowing ember. And without a word, he just immediately raises his hand. And as he does, the flames again start to build up, start to come, raise higher in that uh, bonfire in the middle. And our characters, without wasting time, immediately attack. Because they know he's going to kill him. There was no illusion here that that was going to happen. Zarin, again, has always been very into looking after himself. His goal was to get back to his family. But after everything they went through, losing his eye, losing all the stuff, he finally came into a, an item of real power that could gain power. And he came across a, a group of people that were willing to serve him and provide him that power. And so he decided for once in life, instead of continuing to find a way home and working for others, maybe it was time others would work for him. 
So Zarin, the, always the one one step away from turning anyways, did switch teams, if you will. Very quickly, the party is outmatched. The flames, with moving of his hands, literally come from the fire right at the group. Darsh and Mercy throw their shields up to block as much they, as they can, still receiving burns above and beneath it. Darsh having an issue holding that shield up because of the injury to his own arm. Manages to block most of the flames from hitting Dandy and Artemis. Artemis begins to cast some spells of protection over the party that will help negate some of that magic. But she doesn't have anything else to negate, negate that stone. Dandy doesn't have much she can do. she got a couple daggers left, but with the flames out there, it's hard for her to jump in front of Darsh and have a good range to try to throw him. And they're a little bit of a distance from that. The other hobgoblin besides um, Zarin is just kind of sitting there, just kind of laughing and smiling, watching it happen. But even if she can get close to him, that's a concern. So they're having to try to basically hide behind stuff. And that's that's they can't be close to the fire, so they're having to split. And that's what Artemis and Mercy go one direction, Darsh and Dandy go the other. Because um, the fire literally splits them. They didn't plan it on purpose, but the way the fire is attacking, they kind of got forced apart. So during this, Zarin is literally not even using his regular spells. At this point, he's just doing the fire. And while watching it, Darsh and Mercy, opposite sides, aren't able to talk, but both intelligent warriors are seeing that the flames are coming and then going back. And then coming and then going back. It's not a constant flame everywhere. And you can see that he's doing that and then he's having to basically let it recharge again. It's not a constant kind of flame. So they they put, start putting it together. Because they were asking me this. Do we see anything particular about how he's casting the spells? How is he using a verbal? Is he talking? No. So a silence thing isn't going to work. He's purely doing it from will and control. And they're saying... Is it a constant flame or is it coming in bursts? It's coming in bursts. How often? Every this many seconds. And that's when we're like, okay, cool. We need to try to do that. So they determine that they're going to have to try to move ahead in bursts while using their shields as best they can to block the fire, which is easier for Mercy than it is Darsh because he's got a really big shield, but it's still, a lot of him is exposed. His legs and such are getting burned because he's trying to protect his face and such as best he can. And then Artemis and Dandy are literally falling back behind them, letting them take a bit of the brunt while Artemis is trying to cast healing spells and keep them up and going. Dandy's not sure what she's going to do. She's trying to get in range, and she throws a dagger or two, but she doesn't successfully hit. He's just too far away, and with her little already dizziness, her throwing is not as good as it used to be. So she's not sure what she's going to do. But battle ensues. Zarin at one point switches and starts literally making fire shards or fire darts shooting at them uh, from the fire. So instead of it coming as a big gust, it's now shooting like fire arrows. But it's only shooting one or two at a time, and it does have to focus on one target or the other. And it's Dandy that realizes that his spells are changing as the fire's getting smaller. Um... Because she was, she's, she asked that question. She did a really good job and said, okay, this. The, as the fuel of the fire, the wood and such, is burning down, the fire is getting smaller. What he can do with that fire is smaller. The other two fire pits that I mentioned were already just regular little campfires. He's not getting much out of those. 
But this bigger one was a big one, but he's having to use a lot of fire at once, and it is burning through that fuel. Unlike the last guy, who was literally in the ocean, he could pull water from a limitless source, controlling fire, that only works where this fire is. He can't create fire with the stone, but he can manipulate it. At least, that's how I have this stone working, so bear with me. So, Dandy starts saying, okay, maybe I can try to get, as the fire's going, if he can't do as much, maybe I can get around and get behind him again. And she starts trying to work to do that. He's not a fool, though, and he's watching for Dandy to take this this type of an idea. And as he does, he basically takes a large part of what's left of the fire, and with the swoop of his hand, the fire kind of shoots out like a wall on one side of him, and it's just burning about four to five feet tall. Too high for Dandy to, to jump over, but not massive. Because most of the fire from that fire pit, it basically goes from that pit to this, one of the smaller pits, and what little bit of fuel is fueling that. And at this point, Zarin turns back to some of his regular spell casting and begins to cast spells. Now, at this point, Darsh and Mercy move in. The Hobgoblin steps in front to try to do the melee and keep Zarin protected while Zarin's casting his spells. Because again, spells can be interrupted. Zarin needs that time to do that. And Zarin had some decent damaging spells, if you'll remember correctly. Dandy's frustrated because she the only way she can get to Zarin is either jumping through the fire and getting burned, which isn't going to be very nice, and it'll ruin her nice new clothes that she got in Paxival. And she had these clothes specifically made because they don't make Kender clothes. And Kender clothes are really special colors. And she had to go all over to find the right color purple, and not everybody has the right color purple. This purple is from Thormir specifically. And Thormin's, Thormin's purple is a better purple than Paxival's purple. This is the type of conversation that Dandy is having with us while she's figuring out what she's doing. So she doesn't want to burn her clothes, but if she runs back to the edge of the fire, she's right back in melee with everybody else. Frustrated, Danny starts searching through her pouches and pockets to see if she has anything else that she could work. She has a small healing potion. They had a couple healing potions at this point they got from the temple. She decides to quaff it real quick to try to get back up to, to, to par. And digging through, she comes across something and she's like... Artemis is going to be so mad. Ah, dang it. And she takes the water stone and she mer- and she presses it against her hoopack. Where it merges completely. And suddenly the hoopack itself feels wet. Like she's like she just pulled it out of out of a out of a stream. And she's like, "Okay, and she swipes at the fire wall, and literally the water where it goes through it removes the fire. Now imagine this, if you will. As the water goes through the fire, much like taking a wet cloth on a grimy window, you swipe it across, the things that are on top of it still dirty. It's the same with the fire. There's parts of fire just floating there. It's like she's just erasing the fire with her hoop pack, which in itself is really cool because then she's like, I could spell my D-A-N. Wait a minute, no, this is way too important for me to spell my name. And she starts swinging and she makes a space enough that she can literally jump through real quick and she doesn't feel a thing when she does. <laughs> Neon says, oh my God, infinite water gun. It does several things to that hoop pack that we're going to look at here in a minute, yes. But... What she, what she does at this point is, instead of using her daggers, she reaches down, she grabs 
and reach into her pack and grabs some of her sling bullets and starts using her hoop pack like that. Now, when she flings her sling bullets, the bullets themselves are wet. And they do extra damage versus fire, fire-based creatures, flame sources, and a couple other things that we'll talk about later that she doesn't know about right now. But basically, it's water, and it does damage against hot things. Just like if, hypothetically, Zarin had put a flamestone on the hoopak, it would be shooting fire rocks that would be doing damage to water or cold-based things. So they, they work very much alike. The stones will grant a set group of powers to what they connect it to based on what that is. Had she connected this to an empty jug, she'd have an ever-full jug of water. Something that simple. I mean, ever-full that... She could tip it upside down and, you know, eventually drown. It would just... Oh, oh, literally constantly pouring out forever kind of thing. So, that type of a situation. And yes, as for your infinite water gun, we'll get to that. Not today, but yes. <laughs> but yes, the water stone literally hits Zarin in the side of the head. And getting hit in the stone by a stone, a rock, or bullet in the side of the head already hurts. But for him, it hurt extra because he's considered a fire-based creature. Um, and so it literally not burned, but part of him, which if you'd touched his skin at any point, felt like he was on fire. To him, he felt comfortable, but he felt like he was on It actually, almost like putting water, almost like sizzles and, and cools, and that causes him more pain than the heat was. And that totally draws his attention. The Hobgoblin is doing a good job of holding off Darsh and Mercy. Um, it's taken a bit of damage, but it's clearly one of the best skilled at combat in the group. Probably why it's the second in command. But it's doing its best to protect Zarin because, you know, if Zarin dies, they're not going to let this hobgoblin just walk out of here for fun. So he's got he's got an investment here. And so he's battling for all he can. Normally they would have been taken, they could have taken him out by now, but Darsh's arm injury is weighing on him more and more to the point that he just literally tosses down the shield at one point and just continues to fight one-handed because it's, it's causing him more hurt than help. Mercy hasn't taken much damage at this point, but again, her Morningstar is not doing good getting around the Hobgoblin sword and shield combo either. At this point, Mercy just yells out, Split. And Darsh knows what that means. It's something good. They split. They just literally go opposite directions. The Hobgoblin has to decide who to go after. Now, I'm a Hobgoblin. I want to protect my boss, that little guy. I'm going to step in front of the, the one that I think is going to do the most damage to him. So he lets Mercy, he has to let Mercy go her direction to stay in front of Darsh. Um, which makes his fight against Darsh actually better to the point that he's equal, if not better, than Darsh is in combat. And Darsh, with his one limp arm at this point, um, is actually being hard-pressed back by the Hobgoblin. Mercy charges in to help Dandy. Zarin is a, rain, is a wage away while Dandy's gathering another bullet and preparing to fling it. What little is left of the fire, he kind of moves it so it's, it becomes a ring around her. Oh, good night, Gerhardus. Have yourself a good night, sir a ring around her, and then shoots up. 
Again, he's using what leftover fire is here, and right now it's just burning off what little grass and underbush is on the ground. It's no longer connected to the fuel's fire. Most of the fire has burned out. But she can see that not only is he making this ring of fire around her, that last little bonfire he'd never touched, he's using his, he, he's using his hand to push it, and that fire is, creep, is burning along the ground towards the forest. If the fire can hit the forest and light the forest on fire, he's going to have, oh, limitless fire at this point. So time is of the essence. He sees Mercy coming in and unhappy about that. Casts a shield spell on himself, which he does. Dandy flings another one of her stones and it deflects off the shield spell. It does work in that regard. He, casting a regular fireball spell, which we knew he could do anyways. If you remember, he did that in the evil Egyptian elven temple. Casts a fireball at Mercy. Mercy has to dive out of the way to avoid getting hit by this. And even then, when the fireball explodes, it catches her and a little bit of Darshan the Hobgoblin, who were not knowing this was going on, and both of them are burned and blown to the side a bit from that as well. But Mercy's the, the flame of it, she gets a little burned, but she's kind of, the concussion sends her away a bit. So, Dandy at this point, running in, she's down to just two daggers and a couple of her water stones, figures if a water stone hurts him, a water bonk will probably hurt more. And so she runs in with her hoopak specifically. Darsh reeling from the fire, the fireball that blasted him, regains his balance and manages to pull his sword up just in time to block the hobgoblin, who was able to gain his balance quicker. And now the hobgoblin is just hard-pressing him, and Darsh is almost down on his knee at this point, because the hobgoblin, hobgoblins are relatively decent sized themselves. They're well over six feet, so they're smaller than, than um, Darsh is, but this is pretty muscular. And so it's just at this point with this good weapon just literally beating down on Darsh. Um, and Darsh is, is literally giving out. He's already taken enough flame damage on his legs that his legs were already weak just from the fire that was going underneath his shield earlier. You'll remember that I mentioned that. So all this is kind of going on at one time. And the next round of actions began. Mercy stood up and seeing Dandy run in towards Zarin literally takes her morning star and throws it at Zarin as hard as she can. She doesn't have a skill in throwing morning stars. She doesn't have she had big negative to hit, but it was meant not as much to hit him but as much as to draw attention because he's you know he just cast a spell at her. And that somewhat works. Dandy's rushing in with her water hoop pack to hit Zarin. And in that same moment, Darsh failed his role to def- to attack the hobgoblin. The hobgoblin got the first attack. Well, Zarin... Darsh missed with his role because of everything that was going on. Still got the attack. But... The hobgoblin, there's a loud crack from behind it. And the hobgoblin, little dazed, stumbles, falls forward on his knees. Because all of them had forgotten about Artemis, who successfully smacked him across the back of the head with her quarterstaff. He has a very hard head. And normally, as hard as she hit it, probably would have cracked 
the staff, but the staff is a little bit more sturdier than normal because it has the life gem in it. Now, here's the thing. It being a, <laughs> the life gem, it stunned him, but it didn't do any actual damage to him. It was at this point that they realized that the quarterstaff with the life gem cannot physically hurt someone. There's nothing you can do with it that will lower someone's hit points. Because it can stun you, you could poke someone in the eye, and the effect of being blinded would be there, but it wouldn't cause any actual damage. Thank you, Semeo Flores, for the follow. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, this was a, this is the worst time in the world to find this out, but she never gets into melee combat. So, Artemis getting into combat using her quarterstaff, this is the first time she realized her staff can't hurt anybody. It's a healing staff with that life gem on it. No matter, she could stick it through your stomach and pull it out. It's not going to hurt you. There's just no wound there. It literally can't hurt you. Uh, so, that became a bit of a positive and a negative to them later on. But she did smack enough to stun him a little bit, at which point Darsh was able to run the creature through. Um, Artemis begins to try to help him because he's hurt pretty bad. He wants to get help, but he's trying to get up. He's stumbling. His legs are pretty damaged. Burned and such, specifically. Zarin, dropping, moving to the side, dodges the flying morning star, but releases his next spell at Mercy as well. And it's a spell called Acid Arrow which he's successful in hitting her with. And arrow goes up, hits her in the stomach, and literally has acid on it. So not only is there, it hurting you, but the acid is eating away at you and your insides. It does damage for a period of time. It hits her pretty hard and even goes through her stomach armor because it's a magical arrow. It's bone. But as he does that, Dandy comes at him with the, with the hoop pack and manages to strike him in the head. A blow that would very easily knock him unconscious. But he doesn't go unconscious. Instead, the flames, flame in his eye kind of expands around his head and his eyes start to glow. Like he's getting angry. And he doesn't go over. He turns to Dandy and reaches out with just bare hands with like instinct, reaches out to grab around her neck very quickly. Now, they're both really short. So they're, it's, it's easy for him to do that. And he grabs her neck and he's just squeezing and Danny can't get his hands off. And so she's trying to pry him off with the water hoop back. But you can imagine here's someone with their arms around your neck and your hoop back's under here and you're trying to do something around his arms and he's got like this death grip on her way stronger than he should be able to. And as he's doing this, his head's getting redder and redder and the flames are getting even hotter and he's just squeezing. Um, imagine, if you will, Ghost Rider from the comic books, but with still some skin on his face, but getting there. Because she can see that it's parts of his skin and the hair burning off at this point as he's just squeezing harder and harder. And she's starting to lose the ability to breathe. And she's trying to get the water stick up, but her, her oxygen is literally cutting out and she feels it falling from her hand as she's blacking out. And then... Mercy's there. She threw her morning star. But Mercy, as I've mentioned, is basically a walking armory and carries multiple weapons on her at every time. And she's almost as, just as good with a sword and shield as she is with her morning star and shield. She just prefers a morning star. And she draws her sword and charges in. The actions that Dandy and Zarin were taking happened in a very short period of time. He squeezed so hard that she blacked out almost immediately. She could barely get any hits in or anything against the water with her water hoop back, which, again, 
would do damage against him, but she can't really get a, 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 an angle to do that. Mercy has no such problem, and careful to make sure she doesn't hit Dandy, separates Zarin's head from his body. She actually rolled a natural 20 on that attack. She had a bonus, of course. He wasn't looking, and his, he, he literally was full focused on her. But she rolled a 20 on that, and she beheaded him. Now, when the head falls off, as it would do, flames burst out of the neck. Not, not like super high, but several feet. And the body catches on fire. And it takes a second for the hands to finally loosen on Dandy, who's unconscious at this point, and Mercy has to basically kick Zarin's body away. But the body just itself is just a lump of burning mush at this point. Like, it's melting like you'd imagine something in lava would. Like, if you were to take a rock and throw it in lava, and the rock starts to melt, or, you know, like liquid, whatever. Um, and she pulls Dandy out of the way, and then checks to make sure she's alive, you know, checks for breathing, that kind of stuff. Artemis and Darsh finally come up at this point. And Artemis starts using the healing staff, actually, on Dandy at this point, because they've been saving it. Because they don't—they know approximately what abilities it can do, but some of the abilities that their things get, they just don't all know. Some of them they get to know right off the bat because they're obvious. Some things they don't find out, like this, with the healing staff, you don't know what it does until you actually try. And in this situation, to use it for damage didn't hurt anybody. Um, so on and so forth. So if you were trying to take someone prisoner, it would be the perfect weapon to use if you weren't trying to kill them. They never had to use it that way, but and on and a cool perk if you're looking for something for D&D. So, Dandy's healed up, she's back alive, and it's at this time that some of the creatures, obviously seeing the flames, are starting to come back in to the, uh, the forest. You can hear them crashing into the forest, right? Every coming that direction. You see some of them come running in. And all they see is the remnants of the bodies, fire everywhere. They see just burned. Their own allies are burned from the fireballs and the flames that Zarin was flipping all over the place. And then they see these three women in this minotaur. An elf, a human, a kender, and a minotaur standing here, surrounded by the bodies of all these things. And they come in and they, uh, literally they'll stop for just a moment because there's a bunch of them. 15, 20 of them come running in, see this. And then they just keep on running straight on north. Darsh and Mercy are a little bit surprised by this. They've got their arm weapons out ready to keep fighting if they need to. And their thought is to push the other Artemis and uh, Dandy into the cave behind them. Maybe they could hold them off at the cave which is another concept they thought of early on if they could have got to it before they knew it was Zarin in there. But if, we could, if they could do that, maybe they could hold the cave as long as they could. But as the creatures are, of the goblins and everything are running through, and they keep on going through, a larger crashing noise has come through, and then suddenly a bunch of human warriors come in behind them, and they see these symbols of Paxiwal. Everything going on, Paxiwal couldn't wait. They attacked... And that, that battle's been going on as well, which is part of the reason why so many of them were not here, because that was going on the outskirts. And the last couple that were coming to let them know about the battle in the middle kind of got snagged in the middle of the group of uh, that were chasing Dandy. So it's a big... I, had, I was rolling dice to see if one made it in time or not, and unfortunately, 
I was hoping another group of the minions would show up so I would have give them more to fight, but it didn't happen. So, you know, I like to hurt them when I can. So, uh, human warriors are in there falling through the woods. They do back into the edge of the um, cave, and Artemis is standing near the front, and she's waving at the you know, the knights, and the knights, you know, give notice that she's there, but they continue on. We don't have time to stop and talk. You know, they're chasing the minions and, and, and stuff throughout the woods. And they just kind of hang out there at the edge of the cave for a good little while. It takes a good 30 to 40 minutes before finally the Paxiwal commander shows up with several of his uh, personal night guys that hang out with him. And, and like, my lady, we're glad to see that you and your friends survived. I'm assuming we have you to thank for all of this. And Arnold goes, I don't know what you mean. He goes, well, we were going to give you another day, as you'd originally asked, but then flames started shooting up all over the place. And so we felt that this was something was going on. We could only assume you were in trouble, and I could not in good conscience stand by. So we came in and attacked the woods, which actually helped us. We attacked at night, uh, which, you know, they're attacking creatures that can see in darkness with Infravision. But if you throw, bring a bunch of fire and flames into the into the party, it makes it hard for Infravision to work. So it was a very uncomfortable battle for everybody. Um, but luckily, the mages and clerics on Paxiwal's side were able to make the big difference because there weren't any other mages or clerics on the bad guy's side. The only one they had was Aaron, and he was occupied. They explained what happened. They said this was a wizard. They're, they're pointing at the flaming, what is now just a pile of ash and lump on the ground. This was a wizard, sadly, someone we used to know. Um, we had no choice but to eliminate him as he was the leader of all these groups and stuff. Darsh is kicking the dirt around that was Zarin, and sure enough, sitting in the ash is that gem. He reaches down and picks it up and almost lets go for a second. It's hot, like uncomfortably hot, but not enough to physically hurt. But he picks it up and he's like... He just slides it inside one of his pouches. The others, you know, Dandy sees this and kind of nods, you know. They, nobody needs to know everything else. The commander doesn't know about their quest for the gems, you know. But same kind of situation as before. There's all this stuff that was stolen from the people of the towns. Not to mention, it looks like he'd been robbing, they'd been robbing many places and such. There's food stores here, although many of them have gone bad because they were poorly cared for. But there's items of value here that can be returned to the people of the villages to help them you know, rebuild and such. Paxiwal will be helping with that as well. And Artemis and or Dandy and, and Darsh decide that they're going to go and they're going to check the rest of that cave because he was a wizard, could be magically trapped. Artemis comes as well with m m Mercy. Artemis is casting some spells. No magical traps in there. They find a, a room that's obviously... His, you know, big rugs and curtains and there's fruit in a bowl and it's all the stuff you'd think for someone who was seeing himself as an exalted leader, even though he was not. And they find several chests of coins and gems and valuables, things they find, you know, necklaces and such. Um, they find a bunch of that stuff. Then again, is they, they make the general or the commander aware of. They're not going to take that loot. That belongs to the people it was stolen from. And Paxiwal seems like a pretty good group of people that are going to do their best to make sure it gets back to them. But while searching through Zarin's things, they did find one thing. They were very excited to find it. And they definitely keep it for themselves. Zarin had one of their chests of holding. If you'll remember, very early on, 
the party got a hold of two chests of holding. It's like a big chest you put stuff in. But when you climb in down into it, it's like the size of a, of a big room inside. Shelves and hooks for hanging things on. And if you say the command word, it will shrink to a small chest you can put in your pocket. And you can even be in, people can even be inside of there. Although it only has a certain amount of oxygen or air inside. Once that runs out, they'll suffocate, so you can't leave them in there for long. But feasibly, it's an extra planar place, and it's one of those few that are immune to the rules that you can take a bag of holding inside a chest of holding, and it will not destroy it. Putting a bag of holding in a bag of holding will cause them both to self-destruct, and anything in both bags are lost into another plane of existence. Chest of holding is immune to that. Now, you can't put, you can put a chest of holding in a bag of holding, you can put a bag of holding in a chest of holding. Uh, but any other combination won't work. So they're very excited they get back one of their chests of holding. There wasn't really anything magical left in it. Um, what Zarin did with, with who's, which chest it was or what was in it originally. It's not the one that had Mercy's spell book that she had where she got to cast that one spell a day. Um, that wasn't in there. So they're assuming it was not that one. It was the other one. Uh, but uh, they're very happy to have their chest of holding back. It's definitely going to make things easier for them to carry stuff when they need. The commander... says that the commander says um, you've done a great deed we'll make sure all this stuff gets taken back um, most of the minions and such have run up through the woods we're not going to chase them forever without their leader now we think a lot of them will break up um, and right now we're not really in a position to search this entire forest for them so we're going to all kind of retreat back into what we consider Paxwell territory and once we get back there um, We'll make camp and then begin the journey back home. Uh, they accompany them for a while, um, but then it's decided, talking with the commander, that since they have a way of magically getting back to Paxawal instead of traveling back with them the whole distance, because they're not really needed to travel back with them the whole distance, they're going to go ahead and go back, because then they can tell um, the Paxawal leaders what happened, um, so that they may be able to send up another force, which they may already have, but send up another force to help protect that border until they can kind of police that down and make sure there's no remnants or group of brigands and such that's still up there. So they they use their rings of magical uh, rings of central teleportation to go back to their obelisks and sure enough they pop in in their little hidden room un underneath their house. Uh, Darsh with great strain manages to move the stuff away after Dandy removes the traps and they're able to climb up out of their basement and it's, again, still really... This, by the time it's daytime, they were traveling a bit. They're exhausted, but they decide it's best to report to the temple everything that happened. And so, um, Mercy and Artemis do that. Uh, Darsh and Dandy check on the place, uh, check on Molly, make sure everything's good there. No one's coming to their house while they were gone. Make sure there's basic supplies, because they've been gone for several weeks now. There's no food in the house. Go grab some basic stuff to get them through the day. They can go shopping tomorrow. While Mercy and Artemis kind of report. Um... Mercy and Artemis do just that. They go to the temple. They explain everything that's happened. The temple says, you know, late Sister Mara says, I'll make sure I get it to the military commanders. They know to send what up and what happened. Thank you very much for your help with this. Um, we do have some more information for you that might potentially help you find the third gem. Um, I'm not sure yet. Give us until tomorrow. I'm waiting on one last final piece of information to come in. But once you and your friends are arrested, please come to me because I believe we may have something that may help you continue your journey. They're excited to hear this even though they're tired over and exhausted and it sucks they had to kill their old friend Zarin. But they're going to take a day off and then they'll come back and find out. So they return to their home 
everybody kind of they lock back up the stuff, the rings, the hidden rooms there. They decide that they're going to keep all the gems with them in the chest of holding. So when they're leaving, someone can't break in the house and steal them just in case someone finds that hidden room. And that's where they, if they find some magic item stuff they have that they don't want to take and any treasure coins they have, they usually leave all of it in there except a small amount. They'll keep a small bag of coins with a couple gems. So a little value in the house. So somebody finds that, they think that's their wealth. You know, um, that's the goal anyways. They keep it relatively hidden, but obvious enough that someone could find it if they really search. But they kind of just get in, they rest. Um, Darsh is excited to report that Mal, uh, Molly had a two spare pies that she bought from him, or that he bought for her. Uh, so they have something to snack on. Uh, so let me phrase that. There were three, but he ate one. There's two left. Um, but they're very happy about Molly's pies. Um, and so they're going to basically rest it out for the evening. And then next week, or the next day, they're going to go find out about the next gem. But as of right now, they have three, which is very good. No cliffhanger this week. Um, that's where I'm going to go ahead and call it a day. That was the that one was a bit battle heavy. That adventure that was, I can promise you it's you're not going to they're not all like that. <laughs> but um, yeah, this week was a little battle battle heavy. Um, I did want to say that next week, I didn't get to it today. I was wondering if it would. I, we didn't. But next week, um, I will be introducing probably the my favorite NPC I've ever created outside of the Fire Moon Brothers, who technically they were PC. But it is the my favorite character that I've ever put into a game. And that person, uh, we will be seeing them next week for sure. Um, and I'm excited about that. Um, definitely affects the future. But um, where we're at now, they have three gems. Two of them are merged to weapons. The third one, Fire Gem, is currently unmerged to anything and sitting inside the chest of holding, which they now have back, which is awesome. Uh, they didn't make any loot for that, but they definitely did raise their reputation um, with Packs of Wool. Um, and that's important. And that was something I tracked. Different kingdoms, you can do the deeds that they took could affect their reputation, positive or negative. And I kept a track of that type of thing because I don't like to railroad. You could make a kingdom hate you or you could make a kingdom love you. And I try to give situations which could do either and you choose which one you want. Um, but so far, Paxawal, they've done two things to help the people of Paxawal. They've helped the Navy and the military. They've helped the merchants. Paxawal's pretty pleased with these folks so far. Um, and that's definitely going to help them moving forward, especially in the next one. Because in the next adventure, they seek a gem in a place where even the gods can't see. Now, for those who may have asked, because I think somebody did, let me grab it here. Um, one of the um, visions that Brother Bart got was a flaming eye surrounded by greed if you'll remember. So it was it was, it was Zarin with the flaming stone in his eyeball in the forest. That was the image. So in the, the water one, they saw blue and then darkness blue and so on and so forth. Um, so this helps because they're, they're hoping that each one of these clues has been a clue about a physical location. Um, it's just a matter of figuring out what that is. So hopefully that'll help. Uh, Neon says, the ultimate question is, which one of them will eventually make the mistake of merging with themselves? Oh, you think someone might merge with a stone? How interesting. Well, I guess we'll see, won't we?
But um, I think we're going to call it at that point for today. Thank you all, everyone, for coming by. If you have any questions about this stream, please be sure to throw it up down here in the comments. Don't throw up in the comments. Put your comments down in the comments. Uh, you can also join our Discord. If you go to onlydraven.com, there's a button near the top you can click on, which will bring you to our Discord channel. There's a uh, thread there specifically for Merge World stuff, although we have threads for all sorts of things, video games and stuff. And sure if you have any questions about any of this, feel free to come ask them in the uh, chat. I'll do my best to answer them as quickly as I can. Uh, you'll also find things like my streaming schedule. Uh, you'll find pictures of the actors and actresses that I use to represent these characters. So when I'm talking about Artemis or Mercy and you'd like to know what they look like, there's a page specifically called Characters on uh, OnlyDraven.com which pictures of a lot of these folks. So if you're watching this for the first time or you're listening to it on iTunes, that's a resource you can go to take a look at just so you can see those. Um, we also have the ODG store there that has some Merge World merch. I actually got my first Merge World shirt in the mail yesterday, and I'm wearing it right now. So this is the Merge World symbol. It's a flaming moon. If you've been following along with the story, you'll understand what that means. Uh, it's basically the Rafe Fire Moon symbol, but it's the primary symbol of Merge Worlds. I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, there's also stuff with that on there. We've added, we added a bunch of new merchandise on there yesterday. Um, I also like to point out, those of you who remember who are ODG members, you guys get a 10% discount on the store. If you're not sure what that code is, I have it posted on the members-only thread on the channel. But if you're not sure... Where that is, let me know, and I will have myself or Neon get that for you. Um, but feel free to check out the store. There's some new stuff on there. I'm not saying you have to buy anything. I just like to hear your feedback on what you think the stuff is. Does it look okay? Is it interesting stuff? Is there stuff you'd like to see available on the store? Let me know. I'm looking for any feedback on that. I can. I did make a bunch of changes to it. I'd like to see what you think. Um, if you're watching the video today and you enjoyed it, please be sure to click like. But most importantly, please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. That way you can see all my videos and tutorials and channels when they come up. Uh, the MT. Did they check on the mage guy's family? They didn't specifically, but the general said that he would specifically send some people over there to check on them. Uh, they were unaffected. Thank you very much for asking me that, MT. I, I did not relate on that. They did not actually go back and check on it because it was a day's worth of travel, but they did send a message that Artemis wrote and a letter from uh, Tobias himself and sent that with them to let him know he's okay. And he will touch base with them in the future, I promise. Uh, but no, they did not. Thank you very much for asking that question. I appreciate that. So there you go. Any other questions, feel free to throw them out there, and I'm happy to answer them. Um, what else? I think that's pretty much everything. Now, tomorrow night is Minecraft night. So we're doing Sky Factory 3. That'll be starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Tomorrow is Monday the 27th. Um, and then... There's a chance I may have a bonus extra stream on Wednesday this week. I'm greedy and took another day off work. So there's a chance we may have a bonus stream on Wednesday. Um, Wednesday we're going to try to try to record a couple Let's Plays in Minecraft. So hopefully we'll have some of those up by the weekend. Um, so keep an eye out for that as well, members, in the members threads. I'll be posting some stuff about that and hopefully scheduling some time with folks to participate in those. But we may see a bonus stream on Wednesday. Um, I should know for sure by tomorrow's stream. I'll be able to let everybody know. Okay? That being said, we've run on extra longer than normal today. Um, if you want to listen to the audio version of this, it'll be on iTunes within 24 hours. Thank you again, everyone, for coming and watching today. I really appreciate you sharing this with me and giving me the chance to tell my story. It means a lot to me, and I'm really enjoying sharing it with you folks. Um, also, a special thank you to all of my members for being part of the membership program. Um, it helps out a lot. It helps me be able to provide special things like contests and stuff to the channel. Um, so your patronage definitely is greatly appreciated.
And an extra special thanks to my moderators, Neon and Gus, who helped me keep everything running. Um, please check out the Only Draven Gaming fan art contest on onlydraven.com. Um, I would love to see if anybody has any artistic skill they'd like to put together. I'd love to see what you can come up with. And maybe it'll end up hanging up here on the wall behind me. That's what I'm hoping to do with this, to fill up a lot of this empty space with some of that stuff. So I'd love to see what you guys come up with. But I'm going to call that a day because my voice is running out. Thank you all again so much for coming by and hanging out with me today. I hope you guys have yourselves a wonderful evening.